0: and welcome to an interseason episode of Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers-Ward. And joining me, also
1: as always, it's Matt Stockton. Do you know anything about a guy going around sequelizing movies? He's someone you'd remember. Instead of moaning, he pitches. <clears throat> when you better pitch, he moans. <laughs> 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 Which one of the three of us is that? You'll never know. In a way, it's all three
0: of us. That's the answer. Speaking of... Three of us, the third man in this trio of sequelizing goodness. It's Tim Atum. There's not a lot of money in free music,
2: even less when you're being sued by everyone who's ever been on the sequelizers.
0: Accurate.
1: Very true. We're, we're
0: known for, for our we're uh, litigious.
2: litigious legal defense mm. and attack.
0: Yeah, it's me with a brick. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's been in a lot of fights. I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> well, this week, as I said, it's an interseason episode, so we're going to talk about something a little bit different. Something we've kind of skirted along and covered in various different forms across various different interseason and main-season episodes. Movie skirts. Movie skirts. Skirts, skirts and movies. Start time with to talk follow. about Gladiator. <laughs> Offending everybody here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're actually going to dive into, finally, I think a lot of people have been waiting for this episode. Mm. So much so that when I told my wife, like, do you talk about that all the time? I was like, yeah, we do. Kind of. We're going to actually dive into film scores this week. And as is tradition with these interseason season episodes, we're going to kind of talk about the history and a lot of the kind of ins and outs of film scores throughout the years and throughout the history of cinema in the first half of the episode. And in the second half, we got some picks we want to highlight from specific composers of specific movies. Maybe maybe some you kind of expect. Kind of like, oh yeah, of course they'd pick that. Some, I think there's some sneaky little surprises, sneaky little Oh, I wouldn't have thought about that. Oh, yeah, that's a good
1: pick. Some Sucker Punch is coming your way. Yeah, not but Sucker not Punch. The, not the <laughs> film Sucker Punch.
0: <laughs> absolute, categorically not the movie Sucker Punch. That score's all right. Yeah, Film's not, though, is it?
2: Does it have a score? I thought it was just moody, slowed-down versions of pop songs. Is that too? <laughs> I hate that. But anyway, before we get to all of that
0: stuff, let's give a little thank you to the lovely people at patreon.com slash sequelizers, because you make this interseason free and available for everyone else thank you for your support you you make the main seasons as long and as epic as they are and if you go to patreon.com sequelizers you can get ad free episodes you can get early access to episodes you get exclusive merch you get discounts on merch you get bonus exclusive interseason episodes we've got three of them this time by the way full fleshed out beefs full proper episodes <laughs> Full flank steaks of episodes and some tofu, sure, something like that. Well, you will eat the big yeah, steak. A so. tofu steak. I like a good tofu steak. We have covered genuinely really like interesting topics. I know we say this every time, but in case this is your first time listening and your first time hearing us rant about our Patreon. They are full in season episodes. We don't kind of half ass it and just do like a quick half an hour. It's a full two hour discussion about a topic that we have on our in season list anyway, and we just put like, oh yeah, that's in season episode cool. Oh, we'll make this Patreon exclusive. So they are worth the money, hopefully. I'd I'd like to think they are. Well, even if you join for like arguably a month, you wouldn't be able to listen to all the content. Yeah, you can can go back and you get access to the entire archive. So you also get all the movie commentaries we do. We do three of those per season and we're coming up to season 11. So you bet your ass we've got some movie commentaries coming up. And of course, we have the outtakes for the main season as well. We play games, we talk quizzes, we do all kinds of stuff. It's a lot of bonus content to be getting stuck into. And if you go to the very highest tier, the top three patrons, the highest of the executive producers, you can actually pick an episode as they do. We've covered that a couple of times in this season. We'll be covering it again in the main season. We've got some terrible picks coming up in season 11 from oh those God, top, yeah. from those top tier executive producers as we kind of established over the last few seasons <laughs> they have. They kind of just want to torture us at this point. It's very, very cruel, very unpleasant. But yes, if you would like to become an executive producer, that is the top two tiers on Patreon, and you get a shout out like these fantastic folks.
3: Uh, we're looking for Washington. Yeah. yeah. We're going to meet this chick with really big hooters. <laughs> Sirs, you are in Washington. Really? Well, where is she? Uh, could you, like, make an announcement that we're ready
4: to score?
2: No. Stuart Maine. Oh no. Butt it! Butt it! Wake up!
4: But it! Uh, 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 damn it, Beavis.
0: Uh, I was about to score.
3: <laughs> yeah, but check it out. It's gone.
0: Hyperdude Man. Uh
4: yeah. We'll do your wife. <laughs> no! I wanna watch TV! <laughs> damn it, Beavis! you butt munch. This guy wants us to score with his wife. <laughs> and he's gonna pay us. <laughs>
0: Josh Miles. We're going to get paid to score. Yeah. <laughs> then we're going to get a big screen TV with two remotes.
3: Beavis, this, this is the greatest day of our lives.
0: Dennis. Are you two heading for Las Vegas?
3: Yeah,
4: we're going to score. Oh,
3: well, I hope to score big there
2: myself. I'm mostly going to be doing the slots. Yeah, I'm hoping to do
4: some sluts too. Yeah.
0: Jonathan Firth-Clark. So, uh, uh,
4: wanna, uh, you know... Uh... Do it! We're
3: finally gonna score! Do it? Ow! You guys want to
0: score? Oh. Damn it! Marcus Lindstrom. Don't wear yourselves out, boys. Save some energy for me.
4: Uh, <laughs> that's it, baby.
0: We're finally gonna score.
4: <laughs> Thank God. <laughs>
0: Josh Van der Sluis.
1: Why are we getting back on the bus? It's time to go, son. We can't leave. We never met that chick. Damn it. We were supposed to get some.
4: <laughs> settle down, Bevis. No,
3: I won't settle down. Not this time. Damn
1: it. This always happens. I think I'm gonna score and then I never score. It's not fair. Philip Morgan. We've traveled a, 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 a hundred miles because we thought we were gonna score but now it's not going to happen. Damn it. Hey, buddy, sit down. Shut up, asswipe. I'm
3: sick and tired of this. We're never going to score. It's just not going to happen. We're just going to get old like these people, but they've probably scored. Hey, I'm warning you. Sit down. It's like this chick's a slut. And look at this guy. He's old, but he's probably scored a million times. Oh, yeah. But not us. We're never going to score. We're never going to score. We're never going to score.
4: Right,
2: that's it, nut
0: <laughs> And James McDowell
2: buddy do you think we're ever gonna
4: score uh, i probably will but not you you're too much of a butt monkey shut up still hole butt dumpling
2: Turn burglar uh ass goblin uh, shut up my
0: thank you executive producers for supporting the show as i said you make this show possible you make the in seasons and the main seasons free for everyone else and like I said, if you'd like to go and join them and get access to all the extra cool bonus stuff, go to patreon.com slash sequelizer. So as I kind of teased in my little intro there, this is a topic that comes up a lot because we talk about very good and sometimes very bad movies. But often, even occasionally with terrible films, one redeeming quality might be its score. There are a few yeah. bad movies that are like, you know what? The score was actually wasn't that bad. We've covered a lot of like soundtrack kind of stuff. We even come up with suggestions for composers for our pitches sometimes if it's like really integral to Mm. a particular vibe or a particular tone or it was integral to the first one. So it matters. We want to bring it back for the second one, that kind of thing. I think film scores is such a huge topic. We've kind of danced around and skimmed off the edges of so many times. I'm really excited to kind of dive into yeah. The history and all of the different options and all the different facets of film scoring.
1: Four out of five. That's my favorite film score. Hey! Do you get it? No. So, um, film scores. Uh, just to clarify, I'm not going to address that. We're just going to move straight on. Um, <laughs> Nobody liked that joke, man. Nobody needed to. The audience is cackling away, laughing to themselves, asking, four out of five? That's amazing. Why not five out of five? Anyway, film scores. People may say, oh, cool. I can't wait to hear how, you know, my favorite song from Pulp Fiction is going to be that. It's like, no, 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 no. There is a distinct difference between an original musical score and a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And we will come to soundtracks probably later down the line, probably we may have already touched on it at some point. But the idea is the soundtrack is collections of songs, tracks, whatever it happens to be. And they are either in the film or used to promote the film or a separate CD, sort of an intertied thing. Because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you get like companies like Sony producing films. They also produce albums. So at the end of the day, they're trying to, a bit of a crossover cross promotional thing, but scores are genuinely fascinating. And, and the thing that gets me is, we've had music with movies before we had talking in movies. Mm. That's such a weird concept, isn't yep. it? Mm. And it's before, like, before we had sound
2: with movies,
0: absolutely, yeah, before any sound effects or anything. Yep. Or, yeah, mm. weird. So,
1: um, to, to, to explain, there are probably very, very specific examples somewhere of theatrical productions on a stage that's had like a musical accompaniment at some point. I don't mean opera or uh, a ballet because that's like a constant thing throughout. I mean, like a, an actual dramatic play and you're like, Oh yeah, we well, a already in the background. It's like, yes, that's kind of all the, the setting. That's the kind of the, 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 scenery and the production design that makes this a more lived in realistic thing. Um, Cause obviously film, as we've covered many times in the past, inherits so much from theater mm. in the way that's produced, start in the early days, et cetera, et cetera. And music is like, obviously you, you, you wouldn't have any sound, as as Tim said, there'd be no sound, no speaking, no anything, and the stu not always, but the studio would produce a musical accompaniment. It was like a series, like sheet music on a on a piano or an organ, and say you need to play this at certain times, uh, almost you know throughout the film, and you would play it live mm. in the in the cinema. Isn't that a weird concept? Mm. I Damn. believe my great grandmother did that. Uh, really? On my father's side, no, apparently. Cool. Yeah. Um, Shit's in my blood. <laughs> um, and so you, it, it's like a live performance of the same thing over and over mm. and over. It must have sucked when like, sound was introduced. If you were
2: working as the person who plays the, the organ or the, of the piano in the local cinema, and you're like, great, I'm set for employment for life. Like, I could, you know, Cinema's every, big. Cinema's big. Every day they need someone to come down. They're showing films constantly. I'll always have a
1: job. It's like, and now we're doing the music as part of the film. It's like, ah, fuck. Uh, classically as always industry helping and screwing artists at the same time yeah yeah exactly and there was a lot of that going on especially in the early days of cinema which we've we've talked about in the past there is it was such a hotbed of of technology and new innovative styles and and Mm. ideas that you ended up with like you know you needed this whole department out of nowhere all of a sudden we need this why yeah because we haven't because stunts are a thing now yeah okay fine um we need to have this why because now we're actually recording these actors speaking, which means they need to have to fucking lessons to learn how to talk. Yeah. And remember their lines. We, we recorded it.
2: We recorded them doing a fight, which obviously was a fake fight because we can't do a real fight. And the punches don't sound like we want punches to sound. How are we going to fix that? Create a Foley
1: department. Absolutely. And what's just, that? I don't know. It hasn't. It doesn't exist yet. But is that uh, why we called it Foley? It's a stupid word. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I always find that fascinating where people invent stuff to solve a problem that. Other people didn't realize existed, mm. like studying physics when I was at university and stuff. Like, yeah, they just uh, I don't know, came up with calculus. Like, What do you mean? Like, and that was the moment when they decided calculus was a thing. <laughs> what? Like, yeah, which just uh, do us uh, sound effects and stuff. Just, just do that and record it. I and saw a problem and did a thing. What do you want? Yeah, blows my mind. Like the ingenuity of people that are able to just come up with these like groundbreaking things. We now just totally take for granted. You know, as you said, a, more than a hundred years later. Yeah, in our cinematic journey through history it's like this weird oh yeah that was a thing somebody was the first ever foley artist there was a, mm-hmm. the first speaking role in a movie was the mm-hmm. thing it's like oh yeah there was the world's first film score jesus yeah christ we seem to be delving back a lot into the history in this interseason but i think like the fact that we covered stunts and we went as far back with like metropolis and stuff mm-hmm. like that with the robot mm-hmm. side of things coming back to like this is before talking in movies mm-hmm. Just melts my brain every single time, and yeah. I can't imagine going to a film and having just a person with a piano sat at the front plinking and plonking away while I'm trying to enjoy a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I would find that so distracting. But obviously, that was the thing, so if you didn't know any yeah, different. If you wouldn't know yeah. any different. Yeah, exactly.
2: Mm. But it also speaks to how core music and score, in terms of like an orchestral score or a, you know a, a, an instrumental score, is to cinema that even when movies were essentially unrecognisable to modern audiences, it's like, hey, it's black and white, it's 20 minutes long, there's no sound with it, there's interstitials with the dialogue being held up, the style of acting is completely unlike what you're used to, like, the genre is kind of, like, completely, you know, so far removed from stuff today. But we know that when we show this, we need some music there to keep people involved to create these emotional cues to make the experience whole mm-hmm. and that has that has had continuity
1: from the very earliest days of cinema all the way up to today absolutely and you very quickly get some very distinct trends you get very distinct uh, methods of obviously we we'll don't talk about all of it but the idea of where do you record this exactly? We talk about this in a um, in, like, musical episode sort of stuff. Where do you record the people singing? Where do you record the musical aspect? And then when you get this score only, it's like, is that recorded? So the uh, video is already done, everything is edited, and then you record the music? Or is it done beforehand so people know how they can line it up in the editing? And you find these things through trial and error.
0: We touch on that, especially when talking about people like Edgar Wright, who yes. use the soundtrack rather than a score and will edit their film to a particular song or a group of songs or essentially like an entire playlist sometimes. Mm. You're totally right, Matt. It totally depends on the creators, whether that's the composer and the director kind of working together or the director has mostly done all that stuff and it's mostly shot and edited and then, oh shit, the composer hasn't done anything yet. We haven't even hired a composer. How chaotic that process can be. And when we get some picks later on, I've got some interesting quotes from some of the composers I'm picking out and some of their scores of like, oh, this is an amazing process. It was so creative, blah, 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 blah. And then the polar opposite of that was like, honestly, they basically finished the fucking movie and I was just doing what I could do. And and you Mm. get to that stage as well. And I think it's fascinating. It's so integral to our experience of cinema. It conveys so much emotion. It changes. I don't know if you've seen those like recuts on YouTube of like, we changed the music of this incredibly tense scene to a far less tense piece of music all the other way around. Here's this romantic scene cut it in exactly the same way. There's no changes to the dialogue or the actual camera shots or anything like that. Just change the music. And they go from like, oh, he's excited to see her to like, oh, God, he's going to murder her. Oh, God, he's a psychopath. <laughs> this this has gone from like, he he's like, longingly looking out of a train to, he's stalking her. This is evil. Yeah.
3: Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> the- and- the one I always think of is recutting the Shining mm. trailer and putting, uh, I think it's Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel under yeah. it. And it yeah. looks like a heartwarming family drama about a writer who, takes, and who takes, a, yeah. takes time
1: off to get really get to know his stepson. <laughs> Goddamn insane. Um, and, um, and it's one of those things whereby it, scores are now, to us, so inseparable from... Uh, cinema as we understand it—that if you were to remove it, as has been examples in the past, um, *The Birds*, *Rope*, uh, *Dog Day Afternoon*—there are movies where there have no music in it, and somehow it's more intense. It's like, okay, yeah. Not not more for everything, because imagine in, watching *Indiana Jones* without the *Indiana Jones* score. Sure, it would still be tense—you'd be running away from the big boulder, but there'd be something, just something missing. When bam then,
0: ba-dum, bam bam bam, yeah. when that kicks in, big
3: thunderous like, fucking theme. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. That again changes the tone changes the exactly audience reaction to that moment uh, a born fight when there's no music and it's just the sound effects like yeah oh, it feels a bit kind of real now yeah so there are there are times when a music being taken out makes sense but the majority of the time you will almost background it and you will be unaware it's doing things to you subliminally for a lot of the time i was like oh this is it's really good it's like yes because the music is telling you it's good oh i don't trust this guy yes because the music is telling you not to trust this guy. I mean, yes, the performance, but that's whole the point. I mean, there's always a great moment where, you know, uh, again, let's take, let's take Raiders, it's like a, a, a good moment where you get um, uh, Todd coming in with his sort of you know tortury device. It turns out it's a, it's a mobile coat hanger. But again, that sort of air of uh, nah, 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 nah. oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? Just doing a thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it very much just to, I want to touch on this as well. But we always, well, I I often talk about Bollywood and why there's songs in it all the time. And to uh, Indian cinema goes, a, bo- a a film, a Bollywood film, with no songs in it, is as unusual <laughs> as watching something like Shazam with no soundtrack. And you're yeah. like, mm, I get it, but why would you do that? So from this, I think, yeah, we'll have to big musical numbers. Why wouldn't we? Um, <laughs> That's a way to live your life. Yeah. I wish I lived my life that way. I was like, why wouldn't I do big musical numbers? Why, why wouldn't I? Yeah. But then equally, it's like, yeah, I mean, I can see Spider-Man saving the day. I don't need a theme song going. It's like, you kind of do. Mm. It's really good. It's like, yeah, well, if I haven't heard it, I'm not missing anything. So yeah, as I say, it's an integral part of cinema. It's been around since the start, before, we, before talking, before sound, before anything. And it's ingrained and frankly vital. There are examples where you can take music away and that's always great and really fun. But the majority of films will have one. And I find whenever I'm doing like a Q&A with a director or whatever, one of the questions I will always have in reserve and always want to talk about genuinely talk about, what was it like working on the score for this film? Because mm. each director you speak to will have a different approach, a different idea from film to film to film to film um, and it's just as revealing as, oh, what was it like working with so and so? Oh, what did you want to do with the story? Mm.
2: Yeah, I think that's the thing is that you can do scenes with no score, you can do whole chunks of a movie with no score, but as with most things, the the question is always: To what effect are you doing that? Absolutely. And because it's so unusual to have extended sections without any score and with no you know other soundtrack or whatever, essentially silence, and all you've got is dialogue and you know the the kind of the foley, the 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 sounds of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think it just it it shows how essential score is because it's like that is so unusual it, it almost always makes audiences go oh what's happening here something yeah. something's off and it's like oh it's because I can't hear any music yep. whereas and obviously there are moments in cinema where we we sit up and go oh the thought the score just kicked in but oftentimes uh, a composer their job is to it's su- it's such a fine-tuned job that they do to augment the, mu- the mood of a scene without necessarily kind of reaching out of the cinema and slapping you and going, Hey, listen, look, listen to what the music's doing.
1: Silly. <laughs> and that's a really, really good point because we are so used to this element that we never stop to think, why is it here? Mm. Um and okay, so, so you're right. It is manipulation. That's exactly what it is. It's like doing another thing with visuals, the performance. Oh, that man is sad. I can tell he's sad. Well he's crying. Mm. Like, okay, well that's just an empathetic thing to to gauge from. But then Oh, I I, feel I have a bad feeling about this. Why? I feel like he's going to get something. That, the scene's just going to go very bad for him, hmm. and it's because you know these soft strings are coming in, all those bits hmm. of music. Oh God, something's happening. But most importantly, unlike theatre and television, does the same thing because against emulating film. Why is there music? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean in the sense of like well, we know we know why it's to manipulate the emotions. We'll get back to it more in just a second about all the ways it can do that with different instruments and, and different things and how hmm. much or how little. Because you know, you know, it's music in the early days was on like all the time music now comes in at certain points and it creeps in or it thunders and it just slaps mm. you. It's like, oh God, it can shock. I mean, <laughs> as an example, it's like, dun, 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 Assemble. dun, dun, dun. Assemble. <laughs> it's, it, 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 dun, dun. It's, it's a handoff between where are we, don't, you know, it's, the, it's not the competition between who's talking, what's the sound of the punch, what's the music, where it, it's, it's, a, it's a gliding in and out of these things. Mm. But why are we hearing music? Because... When are you walking around in real life and suddenly someone goes, <laughs> Oh, I think my day's gonna go really well. It's just a not, it's a, it's a completely alien, stupid thing because sitting watching this thing in silence because they couldn't do anything else because there was no sound, there's no actors speaking mm. like they would in a theater. So we'll just cover it with some sort of jaunty music mm. or some sinister music because that's how you would gauge it. We've kept that all the, like, 100 plus years mm. and never dropped it because we'll go, are you telling me that I'm about to watch a film about a guy who dresses up in like armor and leather and all kinds of things beats shit out of criminals? i was like, oh. yes. I'm not going to hear Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's like, yes. Because why do you want to hear that? Why why, why yeah. you, should you want that? But because we're so used to it and we're so geared for it to not hear it in every single film feels unnatural. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something we kind of touched on it already,
0: but the, u- the use of the lack of score in certain situations or certain moments or even entire scenes or entire films in some cases is kind of a subversion of an expectation. Now we're drilled into like, obviously very there's going to be a score. Like there's been scores for 100 years. Obviously there's going to be a film score. You saying it there, Matt, it's a weird thing to think that like, no, that's just normal. There's just going to be music behind a film while people are talking and stuff. It's just going to be music most of the time. And like, no, that is weird, actually. That's very weird. And something you briefly touched on there as mm. well, Matt, like, and something we've come up with a couple of different times before as well is like the difference between diegetic and non diegetic music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether in, in this especially happens in soundtracks, and we've kind of talked about like needle drops and stuff like that. And I think it was some bonus content we might have done for Patreon I think when so. we talk about needle drops and stuff. So, for those of you who don't know, that is where you uh, diegetic and non diegetic music is when it, whether it is. In universe, is it playing out of a speaker or is the band actually like on screen playing the thing or whatever? Is there a musician or a can the characters of music? hear the
1: music? Yes, can mm.
0: characters in the film hear the source of the music or are we as the audience just hearing that? And there are brilliant moments where you know you think it is one and it swaps to the other, mm. that's especially common in soundtracks. But I love it when they do it with score stuff, you think like and then suddenly they switch a radio off or do a thing or. There is something in the background that is actually playing You're like oh that's really clever mm-hmm. oh i like that a lot the, mm. the
1: uh the music the edith pf in inception mm. that they're listening to and you realize that hans and score is actually the slowed down version so it's yes. likely what they're hearing in the dream they take off the headphones and go oh, oh yeah. so they're yeah. hearing this as well
2: oh that kind of thing yeah 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 and i think you know there, there are filmmakers out there who for example the, the dogma 95 filmmakers who who set yeah. themselves these very strict rules about what they would and wouldn't include in film and one of them was that the only music that you could have was diegetic music interesting I, it had to be there had to be something in the scene that yeah. was producing that music If the
0: characters aren't hearing it you're not hearing it. it. exactly cool. yeah
2: um which leads to some very a very distinctive style yeah of Filmmaking, because yes.
0: which should be the norm, right? Kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that makes way more sense in terms of like how we experience the world in our everyday
1: lives mm. than they're just being background music the whole time. In, imagine you but go to a play and, that's a and like it's not a musical, and someone's just talking like, "Damn it, Marjorie, <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that? Yeah, where's that coming from? <laughs> I can't. There's no orchestra pit. Where's yeah. that coming from? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I, 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 I would love to speak to someone who is better versed in theatre. To find mm. out, like, have plays with soundtracks and scores. Danny
1: oh, oh, Boyle did one yeah, for Frankenstein. Mm. There, are, there are versions. There are examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But... I,
2: th- I, I would be fairly certain there are examples. I'd love to know, like, how accepted is it? When did it oh, start? Yeah, yeah, are yeah, there yeah, certain yeah. theatrical movements that that have really embraced it? And obviously, you have stuff like opera and musicals, mm-hmm. which are so embracing of music. But to for for kind of quote unquote straight up plays, <laughs> um, mm. it's it's a really fascinating because like you say it's it is completely unrealistic to have that music going on obviously we have music in real life but there's a very big difference between especially when we're talking about soundtrack versus score the sound the 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 music that you hear in life is more likely to be soundtrack it's songs Mm. on the radio It's what you're listening to and often, when there is music that is diegetic in films, it tends to be of that kind. It tends yeah. to be like, "Hey, we're put, putting a tape, the CD on in the car. We're putting a tape in the tape deck. We're putting, you know, I'm listening to music as I walk along." Yeah. Um. And like you say, there are some great films that switch back and forth between the two. Um, a film called The Skeleton Twins, uh, with Bill Hader and and Kristen Wiig, as one of my favourite music's uh, moments in kind of mu- movie soundtrack, where it has a song which goes from Diegetic to then non diegetic and then back to diegetic. Oh, nice. That's uh, good. And, it, and it's a switch between the characters listening to it very and cool. then it kind of turns into a montage of them like getting on with their lives. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back to diegetic, and you realize that one of the characters basically has been using that song to like get himself back on track. So right. he's mm-hmm. listening to it on repeat <laughs> on his headphones <laughs> and then it like interrupts it again. It's like, it's be- mm-hmm. very clever. But that kind of brings us to the question the question of like, well, well, nobody has a score in their real life, like films aren't necessarily even when you have something that is like a Mike Lee film or something like that. There's a very you know old kitchen sink drama very realistic oh, yeah, et cetera yeah. et cetera Films aren't reality, you know, and we 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 watch them because they're not reality. We watch them because they have tools like cinematography and editing, yeah. which real life doesn't have that. Real life doesn't have your choice of camera shot. Real life doesn't have interesting effects being cutting from, you know, thing to thing, apart from when you move your head to look from one thing to the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and similarly, score is one of those tools that yeah. is not realistic in any way, but it is something that is at the filmmaker's disposal to, as we go back to, cause an emotional reaction. And that is yes. essentially what all storytelling is about. And that's
0: what music is about, right? That's why humans are so. No matter what culture you go to, no matter how far back or how across the how far across the world you travel, people make and listen to music in some form. Whether it's literally just like percussion and drumming, everything is a drum. Everything is a drum. <laughs> you can like there are twigs you can twang that make us play a certain note with their kind of elasticity and stuff mm. like that. To then like much more advanced stuff, and I, I want to kind of dive into this a little bit and think about the evolution of the instrumentation of film scores. Mm. And there's definitely something I'll talk about in my pitches, my pitches, my, uh-huh. three, my three picks, where I've specifically picked three different approaches in, in instrumentation in my three picks. Mm. Jack is the musician among us. Hello. By True. the way, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and I love thinking about, what, like you said, Tim, when you have that moment where you notice a, a mood suddenly appearing because of a particular thing. And it can be as simple as the choice of instrument. And I don't know what that instrument is called. It's some... Mm -hmm. I'm not... Tim called me a musician. That's a strong word. I'm a bass player. (laughs) Barely one step above drummer. I'm literate.
1: I can count. That's not what literacy means. Well... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: But like, I couldn't name like most of the things in a full orchestra, for example, just by their sound. Mm. But I'm like oh that little that little twangy thing oh that's scary or mm-hmm. that deep rumbling thing that's mm. conveying this thing and like it's like
2: that's the bassoon oh exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: i couldn't pick out one wind instrument from another or a particular set of strings necessarily from mm-hmm. another set of strings or whatever it is but i think the evolution coming from as we talked about the kind of person with a piano sat in front of the screen to then going through to an orchestra pit, as we were talking about earlier, still live and still can be in front of a screen and a group of people. You could just have like a string quartet or whatever it was, this kind of still fairly minimalist, essentially classical music, for want of a better phrase. And then coming through to the evolution of classical music and how modern classical music has transformed and how film scores and composers have influenced modern classical music in so many ways. Modern classical music. I know it's a kind of a (laughs) contemporary (laughs) Contemporary classical orchestral. Orchestral, thank you. Yeah, a contemporary orchestral music. There you go. Much better. (laughs) Much more elegant way of describing that than modern classic. (laughs) Um, And then even coming through to like guitar-based music and synthesizers and stuff that is like entirely electronic, based entirely on like weird samples of stuff that you would never guess. And oh, it's a I went out and recorded a bird and sampled one note of that bird, put it through 15 different filters, and that's that noise you hear there mm-hmm. on that bit when he kills him or whatever. It's like, why? Like, I don't know, it sounded cool. <laughs> it has a particular timbre that I don't really, you know, can't really get anywhere else. Yeah. Like, I find that fascinating. It's like the evolution, like we said, only in the last like 100 years or so, and we have hundreds of years of music, as I said, going back to like the classic orchestral stuff, and now through to the modern age of dance, pop, and whatever else, you know, death metal and everything in between, there's so much space and room for different instruments to convey different things. Each tone and each timbre inherently conveys an emotion to you. You don't like really choose that. There's not much of a conscious thought there. And I love the way music can do that and make you feel things almost like against your will, mm-hmm. where it's like, we're going to make you sad. like, why am I crying? Like, because we told you to that's yeah. why because I'm playing
1: e motherfucker. exactly yeah. <laughs> e <laughs> minor that's yeah. exactly it, and the one that gets me and there's a I've talked to my composer, I'll get this later with I talk about my own stuff um Matt as a filmmaker just his own stuff yes <laughs> um <laughs> as as a filmmaker, I work with a composer, obviously, and I remember saying, like I really love this, I don't know what this is called, and he went, oh, I'm going to put that in everything now <laughs> and the thing I love is a slide oh. you go from. It's like, because that, like, uh, like, it implies so much mm. orally. It's like, I was was t- I'm going to talk
0: about some slides later on. Don't oh, you yeah. worry, my boy. Oh, yeah.
1: And it's side of like, well, what, it, can it be positive? It could be a little It could be soaring. It could be falling. It could be It could be anything. It could be mysterious. It could be, I mean, there's a classic um, there's a, uh, British comedian called Bill Bailey. And talking about, I can't remember what it's called, a certain, like, the the drop fifth or some bollocks, mm. which was banned during the medieval period because it was considered the devil's. It's the third. Yeah the third? Yeah. There we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the devil's note, the, the, the Black Sabbath note. Yeah. Down, <laughs> down,
2: down. It's like, oh, it's too evil. evil. Yeah. Like, the satanic chord. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> hell. Yeah, I think um talking about like technology and film schools over time as well is really interesting because when we think back to those old days of there's a person with an organ or a piano sitting there playing the music we tend to have a very specific you know it's kind of the if you have a cartoon or whatever harkening back to those days where it's like oh look there's a man in a black hat with a big mustache and he's tying to a woman to to railway tracks and kind of cackling and going like ha 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 and then a, a thing comes up that says like we'll, we'll never stockton. get away with this <laughs> matt stockton um <laughs> <laughs> we imagine a very specific kind of... I'm, I'm imagining you tied to train tracks i'm not gonna lie yep uh yeah a very specific like piano driven score because that would be what would be played in Absolutely. person and then there's that transition through to okay well now we have sound in movies now we have now we can put whatever we like on there and you get obviously trends in that and then the dawn of the synthesizers in the kind of 50s through to the 60s to the 70s how that impacts how film schools sound. And I think especially when you get to like the 70s and 80s, Mm. there is a distinction in my mind where you have like big budget films and they get a full orchestra. And then you have the slightly cheaper ones. And it's like, we're going to do everything with synths. because (laughs) Then we only need one person. One bloke with twiddling some knobs. Sounds just the
1: same. Same thing now you're producing sure. a score still. Um, yeah. But I, I love the period, you're right though, Tim, that you can mark entire decades by musical uh, uh, um, instrumentation and how things went. on. So, for example, if I want to say the 50s, like, well, there's lots of sounds for the 50s. And I just play a theremin at you. Oh, no, it's every science fiction. From yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to correct myself. It's a
0: tritone, not a third. Ah, I was close. How not, dare you, not, Jack. Not closer. So I told you I wasn't quite a musician. I'm a lowly bass player. We don't play <laughs> chords on bass. Don't be silly. Um, but it it's also time. known as diabolus in musica. There it is, <laughs> the, the devil in music. Yeah, um, a tritone, a triad, the flattened fifth, or the devil's interval. <laughs>
2: which I appreciate. and I, I was right with the Black Sabbath reference. Oh no, no so the, I, I the, believe you. Yeah, the yeah, devil's yes. interval is when he goes and gets a little tiny tub of ice cream. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just gonna step up for a minute. <laughs> 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 ice <It's laughs> <a> cream <screen laughs> store opening. The <laughs> ice cream tub for Beelzebub. Then we go. <laughs> And it's it's interesting because obviously we talk about like how various time periods there are certain trends that uh, because of instrumentation and because of, like everything someone does something cool and everyone goes I want it to sound like that yeah and everyone yes. does it or so, a film is successful and an executive goes make it like that please absolutely
0: and that so, happens both ways, right? Music influences mm. film and film influences music. and mm, Absolutely. have that kind of yeah. correlation to each so, other.
1: So there are certain examples like the theremin you will only hear in a certain period of time or trying to evoke a certain period of time in the 50s usually because it's like that's B-movie like, yeah. like Oh, what the fuck is happening here? Mm. I guess the future. It's a weird like I don't know
0: it's a weird electronic sound that is just very unique doesn't sound like anything else no. and it is played by just using your hands and not touching anything mm. and interacting with the electric
1: field around mm. the the Antenna. Stick, and, stick and hoop yeah, yeah. <laughs> which makes complete sense for like a futuristic sound but then there are other types. that like, Obviously, it was overused and we don't i mean it's very rarely brought in now anymore similarly in the 80s only starting to see a slow comeback every now and again the saxophone was done to <laughs> death. Mm, so many fucking like fucking sax solos and sax like, for for sad times, hard times, emotional times, romantic times, past um, times at Ridgemont High. That yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it it literally by the, the, the late eighties, like we're done here. Yeah. Never bring me a saxophone again. And it's like until about... it becomes nostalgic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I love hearing weird like.
0: You take a score or a famous piece of film music and turn it into a different genre. So you mm. take something that originally had a saxophone in it and you play it on a theremin or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing the disco version of the Star Wars theme. Like, oh, yes. Da, 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 da. In the background, it's like, I should be like smashing through boxes and like down a little alleyway, driving my slightly too yeah. wide car down a small alleyway. They
1: did the same thing with the. Uh, so in Guardians 2 specifically, they were doing this whole thing with David Hasselhoff, the Hasselbrow. The, 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 the yeah. Brow, that's yeah. But they had the Guardians theme coming in and it's that same thing Star Wars in with that And it's got yeah. some disco sort of beat to it. It's like, but it's still got that theme going throughout the whole yeah. point. It's like, because yeah, you can repurpose it quite interestingly. And that's before you get to a load of instruments that, uh, that just are never used. I mean, a, a great example is Hans Zimmer. Mm. Working specifically... On Dune, yeah. There's a very. Br- there's obviously a lot of different things, but there's a there's a very short feature out on YouTube um, about h- how he worked on the score. He said, "There's a guy I'm working with, and he either makes instruments or very noisy art pieces. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> he lives in a house that makes sounds. And you're like, what? Yes. Um, and it's just that th- these are. He said, "It's like, oh, how? Okay, I want you to play this sort of flute instrument. Sure, but don't blow it normally. Just go."
4: <laughs>
1: it's like, okay, I'll do. I don't, that's not how this instrument works, but sure. And as, and then he's looped out a hundred times, and you get this really ethereal, terrifying new sound. Mm. No one, I mean, obviously, yeah, nothing's new arguably with, with um, music instruments, but it's the idea of like, this isn't how this is meant to be played. It's like, good, this is meant to be an alien world. Why yep. would I, why, yep. why would they have a, a X piece orchestra with strings? And it's like, it's mm. space, it's the future. Yeah. And all the get th- some fucking throat singers in there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, all this needs to come through. It needs to feel like it's going to be an otherworldly experience. And like, and it's like there's a very, very high pitched pipe, and like a little whistle style mm. pipe. And you usually just associate associate with like uh, the Arabian Peninsula and parts of Egypt and stuff like that. A Very, very distinct shrill sound. And they make it into bagpipes. Yeah, it's not bagpipes you're hearing. <laughs> That's why you're like, look at the. End. It's kinda there, but it's kinda yeah. not. It's, they, yeah, love it's not. A
0: lot that Middle Eastern influence in the Dune and of they're like
1: absolutely uh, that <phrases> <ideas> kind of like mm. de، yeah. de, 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 de. that interval is very Middle Eastern. As- absolutely, because it gives you the tone of a thing that's on earth that's recognizable without being something that we know. Mm. Um, and obviously th- this is before we even get close to the idea of gutter all the fact that you know everything is a drum, and you are an instrument. Mm. The human body is literally an instrument, as in like literally that, but also bum, bum, bum. I can make sounds with <laughs> my mouth, and that's the song. Yeah. Not a good one. That's a great song. <laughs> that's a hit baby. That's <laughs> that's uh uh taken
2: from Multiverse of Madness. <laughs> that's copyright, we're getting fucked.
1: Um so yeah, so effectively there are so many ways you could do this, and it's the consideration, but I'll come back to that in a little minute.
2: I do think there is a kind of special kind of insanity uh that that music producers and engineers yeah. <laughs> have i always just think of martin Hanna in 24 hour party people yes <laughs> where he's out on the the yorkshire dales yeah. uh just like pointing a microphone into nothingness and uh tony wilson played by steve coogan comes up and he's like what what are you doing martin he's like recording silence you recorded Silence? Well, now I'm fucking not. I'm Tony Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that exact same thing. Yeah, And have it, him having t- take the drums apart. We're going to put them up together on the roof on the to roof. get yeah. a better sound yeah. and yeah. stuff
1: like that. Just tell him to keep drumming. Yeah.
2: and then don't, was it's like someone will come and tell you to stop when you, we want you to stop. And then five minutes later, you see the band driving away and the drummer's still on the roof yeah. playing the drums. Yeah. <laughs> I love the whole taking instruments
0: out of their place or playing them in weird ways, reconstructing all that kind of stuff. Uh, example, I'll get onto later on. Here's a little tease for you. Oh. I'm going to talk about Tom Holkenberg, also known as Junkie XL. Mm-hmm. Doesn't give away what I'm going to be talking about. He's done a lot of movie soundtracks, he's done a lot of franchises, mm-hmm. so he's big done things. a lot of scores. He specifically, qu- he, in his own words, I kind of sort of build instruments, but not really. <laughs> like, cool. Thanks, Tom. He's like, Yeah, I have yeah. this. He has a piano that he took all of the wood off of. I'm like, Okay, is that the weird start? Uh, restrung it with like thicker strings and plays it directly on the strings with his own hammers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So getting rid of essentially ignoring all of the keys and all this weird shit. And some of the strings he he was touring. I think it was uh reverb.com around his like studio. There's a massive like plate of perspex in front of it. It was like, oh yeah, if one of these strings breaks, it's under like four or five tons of tension. It will it will take your head clean off. Absolutely, yeah. And it says when I play it, I wear a full like riot gear face helmet and a chest protector as well. And then you see him like Bing, b-bling, b-bling, bling 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 ding 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 in a full like riot yeah, gear. And yeah, you're yeah, like yeah. this is insane. That's how you make fucking music. That uh, is fascinating to me. Yeah, uh one of the
2: Composers that I'm going to talk about. Oh, there's another tease. Oh, Look at these yeah. teasers. Um, has a Get has teased. a whole genre thing. It's see, he, it's yeah. indescribable weird shit that composers yeah, do. Mm-hmm. That he he calls organic music. There you go. Ah. Um, where he has instruments made of paper and stone and water nice. that he will use to make compositions. Mm-hmm. And so, like, he did one where. It was all made up of like basins that are filled with water Mm. and then you're manipulating the contents with like bowls and bottles and hands and stuff. Doing stuff like uh, instruments that are constructed from differing thicknesses of paper that are then used as cymbals and drums and reeds. And then you have other bits where sheets of paper are shaken or struck. What the fuck? Yep. Um, What does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, he wrote a whole thing called Earth Concerto for Stone and Ceramic Percussion and Orchestra. Mm Kind of cool. It's like, yeah, go wild.
0: Nice, yeah. There's a YouTuber that does something similar to this. As far as I know, he's not a film composer, but he does, basically turns his pianos into weird pianos. Uh, Matthias Krantz, if you go and check him out, I believe Mm -hmm. he's Swedish um and he will turn a piano where it's literally played by actual hammers yeah rather than piano hammers he restrung an entire one with guitar and bass strings and see how that sounds he tuned an entire piano to the note e but every key is e and then has like professional piano tuners come over to his house and be like what do you think i did to this one it's like plink 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 it's sounding really metallic
1: pling bling plink pling 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 as fucking guitar strings. He's like, ah, damn, you got me again. Because that's a weird thing, isn't it? A violin, a guitar, a harp, and a piano are kind of the same thing. It's just what you're doing with the strings. And what the strings are made of. Exactly. How you're hitting or
0: mm. playing or plucking or whatever. You can get so many different sounds out of one instrument. Mm. Like take a guitar, for example, is just six strings, four usually metal wound, whether it's nickel or steel wound or whatever it is. True. And then two are kind of just the the core essentially without the winding, the higher strings. But you can play quietly with the, with your fingers. Or you mm. can strum really hard with a pick. Or you can strum with your thumb. Or you can kind of do some like slap bass and pop Absolutely. and slap and mm. all these different things just from that one I believe you mean slap at a bass. You can you can <laughs> slap at a bass, yes, exactly. Um you could like, pull a bowstring on it like Jimmy Page would do Jimmy Page, the yeah. yeah. You yeah. get all this weird cool stuff. You take one piece of instrumentation from an orchestral thing and put it on a modern thing bowing a guitar being a perfect example yeah. or the other way around where you suddenly string a piano with guitar strings or whatever it is take a cello and play it with a pick or do something mm. plug a cello through um distortion pedals and looping pedals and all these like effects and guitar effects that you mm. can do i find it so fascinating like the versatility and the ingenuity as we were saying earlier of these people that do it for the first time. And we're like, mm. yeah, this is a one of a kind thing. It's a bunch of paper and it's, I'm, I'm playing it like a drum kit. And I did a concerto of stones. So you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? What does
1: that even mean? But that's fucking genius. <laughs> and and that's the the difference, isn't it? Because I think there is a very clear divide uh, because not all scores are created equally. Oh, and absolutely. I'm going to mm. bring up Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Oh. So basically, a part of that's, that film, Jason Siegel's character Scores TV stuff. Yeah, he plays incidental music for very Basi- basically a CSI. Club. Absolutely, absolutely. I be- and I believe it's called Crime Scene, Scene of the Crime. <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, exactly. And it's 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 like he's playing whatever he's he's in a funk and he's depressed. He's playing a certain type of music. It's like, can you just maybe play it like a normal, <laughs> generic? Oh, I don't want to get my dick cut off, kind of <laughs> bad guy <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can. And again, what's <laughs> the phrase? We animation at work all the time, which is, uh, this is for meals, not reels. Um, that being <laughs> show reels. Um, it's like, we're just going to do the job. It's, not, it's, yeah. just, it's just to pay the bill. to get, yeah. the, and, and you have so many sk- uh, composers who are like, oh, I did a fantastic score. I love that they, they bring everything to I this. I poured my heart and soul yeah. into mm. this. And then there's like, and then, this is a piece of shit. I don't care. And neither <laughs> did the director, neither the film. It was useless. And you know what? they didn't want anything, so I gave them the bare minimum. Mm. And not because they're not professional, because like, they didn't want Big considered things. So we're talking about tearing yeah. apart pianos, talking about all these kind of things. It's like it's the same with acting. Sometimes people go like, oh, I want to really get into this character. I want to go into the performance. I want to go everything and, and live the history of this person and really get into the mindset of all this stuff. I did the research of the time period. Sure, great. But some other guy just rocked up and just bashed out the lines and left. Mm. And composers will do the same thing. And you'll find that it's not just composer by composer, it's project by project. Yeah. How considered do they want to be? Sometimes there is nothing wrong with uh, a composer. Every composer you love, uh, or let's or, or, see, there's, a, there's an assumption there, sorry. Every film that you love the music from, mm. and then you start tracking going, oh, that's the same guy. Oh, wow. That sort of you know, thing. Mm. There will always be something where they've pared it back to practically nothing. And it's mm. usually, because of how they learned music, probably the piano mm. or a flute or something very simple and very minimalist. And it's just haunting and beautiful. Sometimes you think, "Oh my god!" Um, I know Guillermo del Toro when he was doing Pan's Labyrinth had a real difficult time trying to get Navarro to just say, like, "Right, look, look." Uh, oh, Navarro, no, sorry, sorry, just to say, "Can you just give me a fucking melody, <laughs> like a nursery?" Sounds like something del Toro would just say. like a nursery rhyme, la 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 la, just mm. that, please. It's like, oh, but I can I don't. I don't want you to add a load of things. Mm. I know it could be better. I want the simplicity of it, and that's that's the point. So it's there's, there's a limit, there's cutting things off, there's knowing where to start and where to stop. And so, for example, it's about Hans Zimmer on on Dune, assembling some of the greatest people. Oh, I like, Oh, we work with this person on Gladiator, we work with this person on Rango and the, the trumpet stuff. Oh, fantastic, That's amazing, let's get them back. I can't wait to, oh, well, let's absolutely do that. Brilliant. And then there are times where Hans Zimmer's just rocked up and said, yeah, this is a conversation. He, he says it's like a conversation, you know, a question and an answer. That's how music works. And like, sure, that makes sense. That's how you view it. But there are Hans Zimmer scores that are completely forgettable. I mean, there are composers I love, like Clint Mansell, who I think has composed some of the most intense and amazing music. But there's also stuff that he's done that's like, oh, Jesus, this, he did this? Really? And you listen to it and it's just regular background rom-com nothing. And you're like, wow, OK, I mean, fair enough. Because sometimes that's what the performance requires. It's what the project requires. He doesn't need you to elbow your way to the foreground and go, I mean, there's like uh, that family, one well, again, a handful of good Family Guy jokes. And one is where there's the porn awards and it's the two composers who work on Family Guy and they're like doing this, and one is John Williams. And he's in this very, you know, operatic John Williams, <laughs> that kind of really over the top. Mm. And he's like, what are you doing here? That doesn't fit. Um, John Williams is another example. He did The Book Thief, I want to say. You're like, really? It's like, yeah, go listen to the score and go, oh, it's kind of nothing. It's like mm. Yeah, John Williams did this. The guy who, as as we always very famously say, you can sing the title of the movie yeah. in his <laughs> his music. Yeah, we, you two are
0: very lucky we're not doing outtakes for these interseason episodes because we would have played a game of the John Williams game. Uh, ah, yeah. Alternately, I shout John Williams film titles at you and you have to hum the correct theme <laughs> and they all kind of sound the same and it gets very messy very quickly, mm. and then you're like, Star Wars, bah, but a fuck no, that's Indiana Jones. And then it's even times where the quizzer or the host, or whatever I to mm. call it, gets it wrong. You're like, no, that was right. It's like, oh yeah, that is E.T. Shit, like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's so funny, but yeah, you're totally right. Even people that define childhoods and lay down these incredible legacies. Sometimes you've got to phone it in, man, you know?
2: I'd be fascinated to like track that by director and and it's tricky because obviously film is a hugely collaborative medium so mm. it could be director it could be producers it could be whatever studio it time could be, pressures could be anything. it could be time yeah. pressures exactly but yeah there, there's definitely like obviously spielberg has an association with john williams who's worked with on several of his films and, and come up with some iconic scores but i also feel like you can go through most spielberg films and go like yeah, I can, I can remember the music in that. Whereas someone like Del Toro, who is a filmmaker who I love, and the only real music that I can remember from his films is has been soundtrack stuff rather than score. Oh. And I and I I I, I could remember watching those films and thinking the the score was perfectly fine, mm. but he's not someone who utilises it necessarily. At least in my opinion, I could sure, be completely sure, sure. talking out my ass here. But I was just trying to think of like filmmakers who I love who I'm like. What is the score to any of those films? Mm -hmm. Um, And he came to mind just before you actually said his name. So, um, yeah, so I think there is, it it comes down to what the director wants. It comes down to if the director knows how to talk to the composer. That is a very important one. Um, And I'm sure that there are composers out there who are incredibly talented, who have never, who have wanted a career in film scores or TV scores and have never got it because they can't. Communicate. They can't collaborate with a director or, or with a you know production team in that way. You know where where they can have a director come up to them and go like, um, it just needs to be like a little bit more kind of like, mm, uh, and and then <laughs> and then ease back. It needs a
1: little bit more than yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah. this is genuinely painfully accurate. To yeah. you know, most most directors talking. Yeah. I mean, I know um again day job stuff. Directors who talk to sound people, and music people say like, just make it. Pause, and I was like, "Good, yeah." And you're like, "Ah, oh, fuck me, yeah, why not?" Yeah. And then they go away, and they say, like, "It's just not there, yeah, because you've given me nothing." Yeah. yeah, yeah. And just like this bit, I feel like there should be another
2: layer to it, but also make it kind of like more stripped back. It's that like, yeah. What the fuck, does that mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, that's musician talk as well. Yeah. The amount of drummers who get frustrated to be like, "You just need to do like a little ba da ba ba da ba like thing." Like, I'm not doing a bad da ba ba da ba thing. You can fuck off. Like, yeah. we're in a death metal band. We do not need
2: ba
1: da ba ba ba.
2: And I don't know, I think there is some <laughs> I think there are some hardcore bands that could benefit from <laughs> some
1: ba 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 was it Dave Grohl who recently said that all the stuff on Nevermind is like ripped off from like disco, disco. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: the um I weirdly enough, obviously I'm not questioning Dave Grohl here, but I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, because so he equated I think it was the Sheik drummer he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um for those of you who don't know, Sheik, going to Sheik. They've got some bangers, good times, etc. Mm. Um Niles Rogers, like one of the most iconic musicians of all time. Yeah, Nile Rogers is incredible. Um and it's the I believe it again, this is me not being a drummer. It's the intro to a bunch of disco songs is the batum 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 bat ding dang and ding. Oh yeah,
1: it's the because yeah. it's, that's the start. It's,
0: a, it's the beginning of Smalls' like Teen spirit. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But but but. I don't think but badadam is the same as but badam badam but, but, but. but this is our, this is exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Where Mia's not a drummer is like but badam is not the same as but badadam but. but, but. All <laughs> right, Vanilla we, Ice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You run into that thing where. Yeah. And I think so many using John Williams as an example there, you mm. get a signature sound from a tick particular composer and you can instantly just be like "Ah, that's probably john williams i don't even need to look this shit up It's probably john williams or another thing where they're influenced by a particular piece of pop music or classical music the one of the most like common examples is halts the planets Mm. saturn and mars and all the fucking planets come up all the fucking time because they're fucking jams. I mean, they're absolute jams. Go and listen to The Planets.
1: It's a full, like, 25, 30-minute piece of music. You like Star Wars or Gladiator or... You love Holst. Or yeah.
0: <laughs> any sci-fi of the last 50 years, <laughs> yep. basically. And, like, there's certain pieces of classical music that keep cropping up and stuff. I can't remember if there was one that kept appearing. Ode to Joy is always here. Yeah, yeah, Ode to Joy is always there. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that thing. Yep, that's that thing They're and again, mm-hmm. it comes to that emotional thing of like, oh, mm-hmm. they're trying to make me feel this thing. You can even use that to like play on the nostalgic kind of things. Of like, oh, I now make that association. They make this moment sound like Star Wars because you know what Star Wars sounds like because you exist in a pop cultural Big world. thundering brass. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think it's really interesting to kind of dive into that. I encountered this all the time and I played you guys the example before we started recording of when I was in the band with Alec and the guys in Monster City we were trying to write original songs oh, yeah. and trying to do like, we're, we're, we're metal, but we're not like death metal. We're kind of that middle ground of like Metallica kind of level of metal. heavier than just your average rock band, but not full like screaming metal. So we needed to have some melodies in there. Guitar solos need to be a tune and not just a widdly widdly mad fucking guitar solo. Not just machine gun riffing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There was actual riffs and tunes and Alex sang melodies and all this kind of stuff. And I would be the fucker, because I've I have a really good ear for this for whatever reason of noticing that songs sound like other songs. I do this to my wife all the time. It drives her nuts. She will be listening to the latest pop release or whatever the fuck it is. And I'll be like, that's a sample from that song. That so I'll wait for it. That bit, that is from that song from nineteen ninety-six. That bit is from eighty-six. <laughs> it's like, oh god. And I did this in Monster City. I'll be like, hey. Uh, maybe we can play the clip in the episode because I own the rights to these songs we can can do what we like there's a guitar solo in a song by Monster City called Water and it is just Bring Me To Life by Evanescence and I mercilessly took the piss out of our guitarist Steve for writing this guitar solo it's great, it's got a really good tune to it and it's not exactly Bring Me To Life but the opening couple of notes are to the point where I would sing it under the guitar solo at every band practice and drive it insane because I'm that guy And the same is true in music all across the world and through all the eras, whether that's pop or rock or dance or disco or whatever it is. The same is true in film scores as well. You see these little motifs and moments and chord progressions and melodies intertwine, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And you get this moment of like, that sounds, hold on a minute. And you literally, now we have the technology, you can go and look it up on Spotify or YouTube, or even fucking Shazam it sometimes. Or you can hum stuff into Google now. I don't know if you guys yeah, know about this. Yeah, I was this. Aware of this, yeah. Blows my fucking mind. It works surprisingly well, which is it's terrifying. The devil's work. It's the devil's work. Uh, Diablo in Musica, yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I find it fascinating that we get so many film scores that do end up, like we said, referencing things like Holst or all these kind of like old... You think like, I recognize that. Is that referencing a film score I've heard of? Is that an orchestral piece I've heard of? Oh no, wait, it's both. Because that other film was also influenced by the same piece of music. Yeah. All that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, you get a lot of that sort of, for lack of a better word, and this is true for, again, every creative industry, a lot of incestuousness. You're like, I've heard this that You've actually heard it here and then here. And then it's from there. It's like, oh, really? It's like, yeah, what you're actually listening to is an original score from 41, maybe like, what? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's been redone. And and it's interesting because the way a score is composed, I don't know if anyone knows this sort of stuff, because obviously Jack's like to write music there. It, I've never written a film score. My music's been in a film. Yet. In Ashton's it's film. True. It's true. true. Um, but the idea is, you're, you're, you're literally, you're given the film in a whole or in clips mm. or in chunks and you have to obviously that we just about the relationship with the director what mm. kind of relationship is it if it's tarantino there's no relationship because he doesn't want to release that um with anybody i think the thing he said was that's where all the emotion is why would i ever hand that over to anyone else which is a level of in- insane level of control you are like that's get better you, at describing it dickhead yeah you weird little man yeah and as i i've said so many times before he has robbed us of so many amazing soundtracks because of the people he's working with. He could be working with literally the, the greatest composers who'd be like, yeah, I'd love to work on your film and give us some really iconic, amazing music. Mm. Imagine if... fucking, um, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I too am going to give you a little tease from oh. my style. Like, triple teaser for you, let Look at this. Imagine if Sergio Leone and oh. Ennio Morricone never worked together. Oh. And instead, Sergio Leone was like, that's ah, fine. I like these old Italian tracks. We're just going to use this instead. Yeah. It's like, uh, sure. And they're good. And you're like, this is great. What a crazy new way to do a Western. But we never hear any of any of the music. And it's like, yeah, you fucked us. And Mm. that's what Tarantino unfortunately does. So it's the idea of how is this composed? How is it structured? It's taking scene by scene. And this is where it gets interesting. Each composer has a different way of doing it, but the majority will say, what's the theme? What's the setting? What they want to Mm. know. Like, deep dive into the characters, the world, all this stuff. Mm. And that's where you get leitmotifs. And leitmotifs, for those who don't know, are um, individual recognizable stings of music that is associated with a character. Mm. So, or a group of characters or, or an event or, or something. Or, yeah,
2: or a, a mood or a yeah, Absolutely. location or a theme. Exactly. Whatever, yeah. 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 So
1: it's like, oh, this is a really good bit of music. It's come out. What's it? What is it supposed to be for? It's the city. It's so, like, mm-hmm. oh, of course
0: it is. If you're, mm-hmm. And if you're thinking, like, I don't really know what a light motif is. Yes, you do. (laughs) You've seen Star Wars. The the Star Star Wars is a perfect example. We're not going to be talking about Star Wars in the second half, so we we can use it as examples there, but I'm going to talk about a lot of light motifs in the second half as well, for one of my picks. Mm. But the Imperial March, that... Again, weirdly, diegetic and solo, don't need to start on that, but
4: the
0: fact that that conveys evil, right? And and it has been used in pop culture so many times to be like, this character is evil. Mm. Oh, look. The evil Star Wars music mm-hmm.
2: And and not just evil It's a very specific kind of evil it's, it's essentially, marching It's, material march. it's yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, and then it's you get like spot
1: on him, yeah. Leia's theme which is It's like, there's like It's not a full romantic theme It's a bit of a strong resilience to it Like It's like ooh yeah. But you go, oh hang on that's Holst is what that <laughs> is yeah. Yeah. And, and again like obviously Luke's theme is Da da that's typically that's mm, the, the binary force, sunset. Luke, binary sun, yeah, yeah. The force but theory. that's what we associate with him or mm. the different characters. Um, and that's the point because then you know if there are two characters on screen and you can hear music going, who's going to win? <laughs> Whose who's, who's scene is this? Yeah, yeah, And there's a great example of Williams doing this and other, other directors obviously quite a lot. But the theme at the end of the Phantom Menace. Mm. Da, da, dun, da, it's, it's this like ridiculous mm. like. That was da, 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 that da, was da. Yeah. 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 Oh, you oh, mean off. the the score from Speed? Sorry. Oh yes. my <laughs> god. <laughs> 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 us like a goddamn fiddle. <laughs> um, that theme is the Emperor's theme, which is in a minor chord, played in a major and sped yeah. up in different instruments. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you get is it's like the again because again the composer understands the story and he's like what are you doing i'm putting a little thing in here who's what the, is it who's the phantom menace yeah, yeah. it's the emperor <gasps> it's like is it yeah i told you the music but you weren't listening yeah mm. and m- uh, my composer david Stoll, um who i work with on all my stuff the first thing we talk about is what is the theme of every character mm-hmm. yeah. and what is i know all like, oh, no, the characters don't have a theme so this is what the theme of the film is the tone and we get a sound going, go like a mood going and a feeling of it all uh, or a setting in general, and he and I will have lots of tons of little in-jokes. And it's like, oh, I've done... He'll, he'll be very proud of us. He'll say things like, oh, I did this instrument instead. Why is that? Because the character's German. and This is a German instrument. Like, Oh, nice. Shit like that happens. Nobody in- notices that oh, shit. Yeah, nobody is aware
0: of the little yeah. nuances like that, but I love those moments. Mm-hmm. And I think you're totally right, Matt. Like, That's a perfect example of... That's the Emperor's theme, but played in a major key and yep. sped up slightly. You're like, oh, yeah, modulation is so powerful in Absolutely. music. You think about key changes in pop music or, you know, the, the obvious kind of stuff like that. The same is true in film scores to convey different moods. You can refer to stuff without being overt or say a character, you know, was in a position of power, but is now powerless or was alive, but now dead, was, a, was in love, but is now divorced. Whatever it is, you can take a similar piece of music, change the key, turn it minor, turn it major, modulate mm. it in some way, and just completely change the vibe and the atmosphere and the tone yes. of that scene and change where the audience sees the character is. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, 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 that's the same bit, but oh, it goes a slightly different way. It goes a slightly
1: different direction. Yeah. And there's nothing like a director interfering with the line of teeth. And she's got a leitmotif. And I'm going to come to Star Wars again, i sorry, because it's, it's very identifiable because fans will know it and it's yeah. quite distinct. And J.J. Abrams for Rise of Skywalker put Yoda's theme in at one point. Yep. Like, I think something like 3PO was talking about something. And I remember in the trailer or might have been in the film as well. And it's like, why is Yoda's theme mm-hmm. here? It's like, because I like the sound of it and people recognize it. Yeah. It's like, but that's not, that's actually, no, that that's ha- not that, how that works. That's not how that works. Yep. So it's literally like someone's coming in and saying, who's this? Oh, it's Poe Dameron. Why is he literally I mean, I mean literally dressed like Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he like he's at a convention? Because like, he looks cool. It's like cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because people think about yeah, Han that, Solo. Yeah. yeah. They'll think about it too closely, that, in
0: fact. That always bugs me. And to, to stick with Star Wars, another brief example of that is the the Darth Plagueis music in the opera house yes. thing that kept coming up in the modern trequel that uh, trequel. Ooh. The modern trilogy sequel trilogy. And it was like, oh. Snoke is plagiarism, and then he's not. And you're like, why did you play the music then? And he's like, because it was evil sounding. <laughs> D- that's exactly it. <laughs> you either, you can use that to throw off the nerds, which is definitely something always they worth do, doing, always, always yeah. worth doing. Or you just didn't think about it. That, that second option and that's it. annoys yeah. me much, much more. The fact that you have this enormous access to resources mm-hmm. and budget and fucking John Williams of all people. And you're just like, ah, just stick it in, it'll be fine. No. Yeah. And, and this shit matters, especially in Star Wars, where you've set that
2: precedent already. Mm. That's the thing. And and that kind of use of leitmotif goes back to opera and to musicals and stuff like that. Like, uh, oh, an example, yeah. Could, uh, mm-hmm. a, a really good example is Peter and the Wolf. Um okay. Absolute um, pornography um, uh, of um, Peter and the Wolf, yeah. Yeah and that's uh, for people who don't know it's a piece of music from the the 1936 and each cat it's kind of like done as a fairy tale uh and each character within it not only has a theme but they have a musical instrument or set of instruments that are associated with them so for example the duck is the oboe the cat is the clarinet and you can do that in film schools and then you can do stuff like oh these two characters meet we're gonna play like a variation on one of their themes, but we're gonna use the instrument oh. from the other person.
1: Yeah, and now that's that shit, now a of, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, that's kind of how I learned about the orchestra as a kid was Peter mm. and And also by, by the way, dun 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 dun. like, what the fuck is this? I and I was like, the 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 hunter's gun is played by the timpani drums. Yeah. Oh wow. And you 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 do get. it's a genuine education. And you're absolutely right, Tim. That is the leitmotif through and through. And so you wouldn't say, right, Peter went out for some milk. And then you fire the gun sounds. Like, that's, you've told me the rules. Yeah. Why are you breaking said rules? And I see you're being very clever about it, as you say that you can play with people that way, but it's all down to consideration. Yeah. Um, and to, to, to kind of show, like, I, a sort of cyclical nature of it, just to tap off before we go to our second half, we are now at the stage where people will go to concerts like Royal Albert Hall or mm. you know, somewhere in American Carnegie Hall or something like that. Or Carnegie Hall, sorry. And they will watch orchestral performances of movie soundtracks. Mm. It's like, oh I'm gonna go watch Jurassic we, Park soundtracks. We, we cool.
2: recently had a performance uh as part of the proms season in the UK. Yep. There was the video game proms. Yep. Uh, and it was people playing themes from various video games. Mm-hmm music composed for video game, etc et because et it's
1: it, it, it's given this sort of like oh well that doesn't count as real you know music yeah. it's like why the fuck not yeah i mean jack and i went to see uh, the assassin's creed symphony live exactly. with our partners and i i absolutely fucking adored respective it respective emma's if you will yes that's absolutely correct. yeah um <laughs> I, I i genuinely loved it because the thing is by that stage in the early 2000s or mid 2000s i should say you could have a full orchestral sound on a video game. It wasn't yes. just 8-bit stuff. And even with the 8-bit stuff, it's still very well-made music. Mm. Um, by the time the PlayStation 1 came around, you could have like like the Final Fantasy style thing, Final Fantasy 8 especially, mm. a full-on orchestra. Um, yeah. And people will say, like, oh, I'm going to go to London. Oh, wow, you're going to see a performance. Oh, well, what? Jurassic Park. Mm. Like, Sorry, you're watching Jurassic Park in the cinema. No, not the movie. Yeah, I'm just going to go listen to an orchestra play the music at me. Mm. Which, when you take it out of the film, is like, that's... Interesting, and they, then you look at it. And go no, because in itself, in its own right, it's imagine it's it's that moment you're in a big proper orchestral hall with a live orchestra in front of you, and you've heard it in a film, you've heard it as a background. And then you're
3: suddenly
1: uh, 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 and it's like, "Oh, where's this going?" Da, na, na, and your whole body shakes like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" Oh, that, oh, it's it's just like know,
0: the Jurassic Park theme So fucking.
1: There good. we go. Yeah, and it's, the it's way it builds up. Yeah, <laughs> and then. <laughs> da, 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 um,
3: it's got so many
2: bits. There was a there was a tweet that was going around a, a few weeks ago that was like you know, fake dialogue of like Steven Spielberg, I'd like some music about my dinosaur theme park film, please. And John Williams being like Hello, I'm about to write the most beautiful piece of music you'll ever hear. <laughs> <life. laughs> Straight up, like Jurassic Park theme, and weird enough, Jewel of
0: the Fates from the Phantom Menace Beep, bep, are like two of my favorite pieces of music ever. Mm-hmm. And I will go out of my way to just listen to them completely outside of the films.
1: Oh yeah, and yeah. Unsurprisingly for me, I have a huge playlist on Spotify called Best Scores, of course. And people say that how the fuck is that terrible-ass movie on here? It's like, because I'm not talking about the movie. That's the thing. I'm yeah. talking about the music. Yeah, And the music is glorious. I mean, yeah. I, I always say this. John Powell's score for X-Men The Last Stand Yuck. is magnificent. Oh. I love the music from that film. I think the theme he did for for Phoenix is soulful and wonderful and haunting. And I can't really remember much of the music from the first two films, even though mm. I think those films are infinitely better yeah, as films. that's fair. But one last thing to close out, because there is a, a peril here, and we'll mm. come back to it which, later. Which
2: we've already kind of talked about. Yeah, we've yeah. to With the holsts
1: and the et cetera,
2: Absolutely. Et cetera. But
0: a, <laughs> Your holsts and your whatnots. Your, yeah. holsts,
2: your holsts and such. <laughs> uh, but it's become more endemic. It seems, yes. at least, mm. it has
1: become more endemic to, to modern music. Uh, Very to much so. It, this is the idea of what's called uh, hold music, or temporary music. And the idea is that a director, and I mentioned before, like, why do we do it this way? because that's how it's always been done. And again, Hans Zimmer on June, he, what what's what's called a sketchbook. And he's like, here's some themes to have in your head while you're directing your movie. I'll go mm. and refine it and we'll put it together. That's a really nice thing. I actually did the exact same thing with my composer. Where I'm like, I'm shooting, knowing what the score is sounding like for each character. I'm, mm. I remember playing to Tim specifically saying, your character's theme is this. Mm. And there were a lot of ticking sounds it was very because it's like well he's a very methodical, fastidious character and he's obviously a bomb maker and it's like brilliant. I mm. love it. That's glorious. Um, Jack hasn't heard his theme yet. I have no clue. No. no, it's very sort of I'm barely on detective.
2: screen. It's kind
3: of so that makes sense. Yeah. Um, anyway, it goes. Just on a loop.
1: But if I'm editing and I'm like, okay, well, I need some music so I know what it's going to sound like. I need to show the back of the producers and I can't just watch it cold. I won't get the feeling for it. I'll just put some sort of similar sounding music of what I think it's going to sound like later and put that in now. What are you going to put in? I'll put the Dark Knight theme in and I'll put in something from fucking The Raid because I thought that fight scene was really cool and there's a cool fight scene we've got here. And uh, we'll go with, I don't know, something from Doctor Strange because I like the harp score sound. Mm. Okay, that's sort of fine. And then you start going, that's really good. Can we cut it here? Because I think that music cuts in really nicely with it. And there's nobody saying, well, they are, but they're not listening. Yeah. <laughs> But you're not using this music. Oh, no, no, no. I know that. Mm. So don't change. Stop editing it. it to the music. You're not, yeah. not going to bake into the Sit final Sit there movie. with a metronome. Yep. That's <laughs> what you should have. You should have a click track. Yep. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, I, I've been told that my edits, I'm, I'm like, I, I purposely will not have music on when I'm editing because I'm like, I want this, the scene to work. Mm. And then my composer to come in and say, right, now I'm going to elevate it. Exactly. It's like, you do your bit now. It, it's like, it's almost like, you know, I've been rehearsing the lines because the actor couldn't be here, and then the actor starts acting and in the background. The director behind the camera is going, "Yes, like, can you shut the fuck or up? Then, Let the
2: actor act." Or then wants the performance to yes. to match yes. what they have in their head without taking into account the fact that they're
1: an actor bringing their own thing. Exactly. Abs- absolutely. And, and so there are so many instances of directors who will say, "I've edited this with this," and every time you bring me some new music, the reality is that what they're going to say is. Ah, I kind of like it, but there's something missing. It's like, yeah, because you, for the last 20 weeks, have been listening to the same song. Mm. And now I can't sell you on anything else because you're going to heard that and only that. So what you end up with sometimes is, you know, it's a rough idea and it goes along with it. And when you're at test screenings, for example, um, my aunt went to see a test screening of, of Serenity years and years and years ago. And it's like, oh yeah, the music in one point was, and she recognized very clearly, was the short Shawshank Redemption. It's like, it didn't work, but you could say, it's this kind of thing. It's yeah. like, okay, sure. And obviously I think it was Thomas Newman who did the music for that one, wasn't pushed into making it sound like the Shawshank Redemption, but he knew mm. that he knew what you would do with the tone. Yes. I know what you mean by that. Don't make it... That's The worst thing you can say to the a composer is make it sound like this. Yeah. Because you're like, fuck you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unless they're very good in certain ways and say, no, that's fine. I can take that light motif because we are using it intentionally. But hold music can be so poisonous because what it ends up being with is that get it as close as you can without us getting sued. Yes. Uh, a la uh, Mars and holst uh sorry mars by holst in gladiator which is very and like, like there's like mm. three notes difference yeah in gladiator to make it like well this and, is so close it's ridiculous they have it a bit better because holst is from like 18
2: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and is not going to sue whereas there's an increasing tendency now to use other film scores mm-hmm. to score your temp track and you end up even when it is legally distinct and there's been situations like Titus and 300 where the music was so close that they ended up having to pay to the Titus composer a Absolutely. bunch of money, but there's a lot of, and there's a, you can find many examples of this on YouTube and various other things of scores that sound like other scores from recent movies, mm-hmm. um, which is a, is a shame. And it's not, it's not the only problem plaguing, you know, uh, sort of, music composing in, in Hollywood and stuff. There's other issues. Um, but it is something that a lot of people and especially a lot of film score composers point to and say, like, this is an issue because we have a job to do. And if the director and the producers have already made their mind up about how they want a film to sound, they, then we are, you know, we are hitting resistance, essentially. And we can't be as creative as we'd like because they have something so concrete in mind that they mm-hmm. just
1: want us to fit into the template of this, but legally distinct from. Absolutely. And it's it's frustrating as all hell because again, it's it's really down to the directors too short-sighted and thinking the audience is also going to know these things and have an association with it if it is known. Yeah. And you're ruining that respect and the composer's not being having the power or the, or the capacity or the time sometimes to say, no, let's really think about this mm. and let's get a good, unique thing that people will go back and say, that was an iconic soundtrack. Mm. And it can or be... Score.
2: It can be the kind of thing that even if you don't, some people are going to notice it straight away if they're musically minded. Hello, that's me. Yeah, they can they can go into a cinema, especially if it's a score that from a film that has impacted you or that oh, you yeah. listen to a lot for a reason. You go into another film and you go, hang on, this is the music from, Yeah, oh, I guess it's not quite the music from, but it's very similar to. And then even Why if you're I not- I thinking of Will Ferrell's Elf all of a sudden? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I never I, want to be thinking of Will Ferrell's Elf. Oh, uh, See, I'm always
2: thinking of Will Ferrell's Elf, so, you know. <laughs>
0: Um, that, that defines our entire personality. Yeah. <laughs> the main difference between me and Tim is yep. how often we think about Will Ferrell's elf.
2: Yeah. And so you can have people who will immediately notice that. But even if you're not that kind of person, if you then have it pointed out to you, it can be the kind of thing that just really sticks in your teeth. Once yeah. you hear it, once you can't you, unhear once it. Once you hear yeah. it, and you're like, no, God, that really is just the music from, you know, I don't know, Carol. But you know they've switched out the the
1: violins for guitars. It, it, it's when you listen to something and they're like, "Oh, did you, did you really enjoy the score for Lincoln? Oh, I did. It was fantastic." Mm. Do you know it's Bar Bar Back? so slowed down. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, this isn't true, by the way. But you know, it's, it's that kind yeah. of. Yeah. But then you listen to. <laughs> about to blow some listeners' yeah. minds. Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's the point because like, this thing is it fucking is. Yeah. And I can't not hear that now. Yeah. Shit.
0: Yeah. It's happened so much in pop music as we know the classic. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Four chords of pop thing where you can basically play any pop song over the last 40 years over the same four chords and it kind of works and there's been a lot of lawsuits recently in pop music where people the the melodies of use of certain things or certain chord progressions and all this kind of stuff coming up all the bloody time i notice it far more in like music than i do in film scores and stuff but Mm -hmm. i think it is still well music you are focusing on nothing but the music that's the that's exactly it yeah i can kind of think about When I listen to music, often for the first time, I'll be like, oh, what key is this in? What chords is it using? All that kind of stuff. My brain switches into that kind of analysis mode. Usually, as you said, Matt, when you're watching a film, there's other stuff going on. There's dialogue. There's action. There's shots. Whatever it is, like where I'm not entirely focused on just the music. So I definitely do notice it, but not as often as I do when I'm just listening to normal music. So Mm. should we talk about some picks and some interesting choices?
1: Let's blow some motherfuckers minds.
2: Yeah. Efficiency is the name of the game, gentlemen. You should be optimizing your life for capitalism. (laughs) Not only do you have your regular job, you have your side hustle. You have your your parallel hustle, your perpendicular hustle, and your four-dimensional hypercube hustle. The tesseract hustle, as we call it in the game. And if you want to fit all of those into your life, as well as stupid things like... (laughs) Family and sleep (laughs) Then you need to optimise your meal time And you can do that By using Athletic Greens Say goodbye to prep time And say hello to better gut health More energy For production And an optimised immune system So you are never ill And wasting your time On gross bodily functions And not only does this give you an optimised immune system, it also tastes super healthy with a mild tropical taste that you'll look forward to every morning as you take your three-minute shower, shave, poop, and brushing of the teeth. You wanted to say shit-shave and shower, didn't you? A little bit. (laughs) So what is AG1, aside from a tool for a more productive you? Why, with one delicious scoop, just one, efficient, I like it, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfood, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. 75 in one scoop. So efficient. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery, focus, and aging. (laughs) All those at the same time. AG1 is but a small micro habit, and that's all you can afford. Micro habits. (laughs) But it has big benefits, supporting better sleep quality, and it's cheaper than getting all the $100 per day supplements separately. So right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition with just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Optimize your nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This week's episode is also sponsored by Audible. Audible has thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, comedy specials, and much, much more. Every kind of delightful audio content for your ears, including us, the sequelizers. Hello. Look us up. We're on there. And we're here to enhance this fantastic audio experience. Because if you head to audibletrial.com sequel, you can get a month free, and a free audiobook on us. For this episode, I'm recommending The Musical Human, A History of Life on Earth by Michael Spitzer. Mm. This is sort of a musical anthropology a oh. eh? yeah, The Musical Human takes us on an exhilarating journey across the ages from Bach to BTS and back. That's, That's not that far forward or backwards, but you know what? I'm, I'm sure it will be Yeah, good. Uh, to explore the vibrant relationship between music and the human species. With insights from a wealth of disciplines, world-leading musicologist Michael Spitzer renders a global history of music on the widest possible canvas, looking at music in our everyday lives, music in world history, and music in evolution, from insects to apes, humans to AI. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, So that fascinating book, or thousands upon thousands of other titles are available, for you to pick up as your free audiobook, along with a month free uh membership to audible.com. Simply go to audibletrial.com slash sequel and start listening today. Jack, you mentioned a, a little fun game. I and, did. And in the in, in the little break that we've just taken to, to pull back the kimono for our listeners, oh, we did have a little break. That's what we, we were doing. In the of the break. It's fine. We hot cool in here. we cooled down. It's very hot in here. Yep. Um I should have stood up. We we decided that we we couldn't resist the allure of the John Williams game. Yeah. To
0: again pull back the kimono, if you will. And I will. You two made distinct eye contact. I mentioned, ah, we don't <laughs> have time to play the John Williams game. If only there <laughs> were outtakes and there was just looks shot across the room from both Mr. Stockton and Mr. Matum
1: so Just you So you like, know it wasn't like a Western clang clang clang. Oh it my was. god, are gonna shoot it. it was absolutely was. More the, was. It was It was more th- the idea of like Tim, it, it was more like uh you're it was more like that
2: bit from uh, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" when uh, Charlie and Charlie and Mac <laughs> lock eyes across the restaurant.
0: <laughs> Stop staring at him. So the way this version of the John Williams game, there are plenty of different versions. There's drinking variants and all kinds of stuff. The one I have played is traditionally between two people with one person shouting at the other two. So, yep, hello, I'm, I'm the shouting. person. I'm the person that shouts. So much like our podcast. <laughs> yep, <laughs> welcome to Sequelizers. I have seven of Mr. Williams' finest (laughs) scores for you. I will say the name of the movie and you must hum a recognisable part of that score as quickly as you can. Oh, God. First of three strikes of not humming the correct thing or humming the incorrect thing is out. The other player is alive and living. Uh, Okay. He's winning. (laughs) Okay. Or like Charlie seemed, Sheen. Yeah. <laughs> Takes <laughs> him high on this one. Yeah, you didn't know what you were signing up for. And now you're like, oh, let's play a little game. Turns out the other person dies. Apparently it's Game. Jack yeah. just threw a knife down in between yeah. us. It's Squid Game. Who knew? So, would you like the list of things or me to just go in and start? I assume you go out? in. Otherwise, yeah. That's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. yeah, we yeah no, no, I no, prepared, no time otherwise. to no, prepare. Yeah, no prep. Okay. Who would like to go first? Do you have any preference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get out of the way. Okay, I won't necessarily be using the full title of all of these films, but I will use a, a thing that will explain what you—you'll get what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Like I won't say Indiana Jones and the blah 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 blah. I will just say Indiana Jones Got as it. an example. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of examples like that. Some of them are full titles. Some of them are not. Starting off, Mr. Stockton, Jurassic Park. Dun 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 dun
3: dun dun. Perfect. Lovely. Thank you. You slag. How rude. Tim. Okay.
0: Superman. <laughs> there we go. Nicely. Nicely done.
3: Matthew. Harry Potter. Ding, 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 ding,
0: ding. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be rapid fire. So this we're going to keep speeding things up. Novelty uh, doorbell there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very clangy, chimey. Mm-hmm. Tim, E.T. Oh,
2: God. Uh, yeah, that's, where it goes. that's where it gets you. Um, hmm. Do I get to steal? No, I can't, I can't think of how E.T. goes. Oh, it's one, been a one, long while once, since I watched strike it Tim. a lot
0: as a kid. But... One strike for Tim. Yeah, Matthew, you want to take on E.T. as your next
1: shot? Yeah. Um. I can't do it very musically, but you Yeah. Know that. Yeah, yeah now I can, I can remember it now. Tim, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park.
0: Again? Yes. It's... It loops right round. Oh. I'm, picking, I'm picking them randomly. Oh, yeah. OK. So you might get the same one in a row, you might get the same one you've just done for another one. We're going to keep going around. OK. Jurassic okay. Park, Tim.
2: Um. Uh, oh, God. My... See? <laughs> this is the <laughs> how the game works. You <laughs> just Shit. heard Jurassic
0: Park like 10 seconds ago.
2: Yeah. I'll you that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Close encounters, Matthew. Dun, 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 dun. Thank you. Jaws. Timatum.
2: Um. will
3: do nicely. Like. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Indiana Jones. Matthew.
0: I brought an instrument for that one. <laughs> Called his lips. <laughs> Harry Potter. Tim. Do <laughs> do Superman. Matthew.
3: Dan 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 Dan. Indiana Jones, Tim. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah, oh
2: that's, No, that's the no. second strike, yeah, Tim. No, that's my brain gone.
0: <laughs> this is this is the joy yeah. of the John Williams game. You think you know them all? You've just heard it a minute ago. Yeah. but No, it's currently two one. No, two nil. Yeah, for Tim. Yeah, in a bad way. <laughs> 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 you want the lowest score? It's like golf,
2: but yeah. with John Williams. Maybe John williams space golf. We don't know. Oh, he's, he's a yeah, old white. He's, man. Old. Yeah, he's a white dude.
4: Yeah.
3: Jaws Matthew. Burn him. Burnham. Burn him. Close encounters, Tim. Do
0: do 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 enough. E. T. Master Matthew Stockton. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> he's the
1: real one. The one I can't do very well. Yeah. Um, I'll just pass because I can't. I can't. Oh, two, two, Yeah, it's one of those ones I have to. I yeah. Yeah.
0: Would you like Close Encounters, Tim? Because you're getting Close Encounters, Tim. Dun There
3: you go. Indiana Jones, Matthew.
1: Dun da 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 You went
0: to Star Wars there. Very careful. Oh no,
4: that's
3: how it starts.
0: Harry Potter, Tim. Dun 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 Jaws,
3: Matthew. Da Dun, dun. Superman, Tim. Jurassic Park, Matthew. Dun, dun, dun,
0: dun. We could be on a loop here. This is <laughs> <doesn't be> bad. <laughs> Indiana Jones, Tim. Um. Fuck! No! no! Hey! Indiana Jones <laughs> keeps going out of my brain! Indiana Jones! See, I think Whew. that's the one that catches people out for whatever reason. Because there it's are three si- it,
1: fucking versions
0: of it in one song. Yes. Yeah. And it's similar enough to Star Wars and Superman. Yeah. That they're all... Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. oh, They all sound the same. Well done, Matthew. Thank you. Three strikes and you're out, Tim. Yep. The punishment is death. Okay. Death by... Death by John Williams. Yes. Death by John Williams.
1: Yeah, we just dropped John Williams there.
0: on you. I think he's an old, frail man, so he'd probably be fine. Yeah. He, Not
1: if he's this. from an immense height. But, then, but then, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> then we'll lift him up again and drop him until you're dead. <laughs> you may drown in his bits. Yeah. exactly.
0: <laughs> so, those of you who weren't paying attention, those seven titles were Jaws, Jurassic Park, Superman, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, Indiana Jones, and its various themes, and Harry Potter. But no Star Wars. No Star Wars. That caught you out.
1: There you go. I was you, waiting for it. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's moments where you think like, "Oh, he's about to say Star Wars." I didn't say Star Wars. You can play it with like more of them. I I played it with up to ten before, and it was oh yeah yeah yeah. You yeah, get yeah. to like weird shit. You forget he did and stuff like that.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah, you know what God. I was waiting for?
0: Hook. Yes, exactly. <laughs> shit like
3: <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> anyway, another point. Let's move on. Should we get into some picks, gentlemen? Yes, Mister Mason, won't you
2: kick us off? As a, as first. I lost. <laughs> Indeed. As
0: a big fat loser when you get stuck in. The floor is thing. yours.
2: Yeah. Um I am trying to decide. I think I'm gonna go back in time. Oh I'm back gonna start with the most recent and
1: work my way back. I was gonna go, Oh, back to the future. I was like, No. No. no.
2: Silvestri, it's fine.
1: Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a reasonable thing.
2: Yep. Yeah. Uh anyway, I am gonna I I scooped one. I can't remember if Matt had made all of his choices when I put this one down.
1: Uh Tim. I had made all my choices, mm-hmm. but it's odd that I haven't made this choice. Yes, yeah. yeah, I have gone for
2: the social network by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Ooh, nice! As a, as a piece that I want to highlight in terms of cinematic scores, Tim likes the sounds of broken air conditioners. Yes, I listened to this soundtrack. It's like I have a. a, 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 a Account on a thing called Last FM, which like tracks your music listening over time across mm. various different, uh, you know, kind of Spotify and iTunes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is like one of my most listened to albums because not soundtracks, album, albums. Full stop. Um, because I find it as excellent music to work to. Um, not just like on its own, it is a rich and compelling score but it also has this hum of industry to it which of course it comes from an industrial artist trent Reznor. and there is something very particular about the mood it creates um that works so well with the social network it's fascinating to me like trent Reznor, as as from who people don't know Comes from Nine Inch Nails was kind of his, you know, big project that he was most
1: famous for. It's his thing. It's, it's his him. thing. Well, him and Ross now.
2: Yes, yes. And he had had dabbled with a lot of orchestral and uh, purely instrumental music, m- increasingly so as kind of time went on. Um, and he had previously he produced soundtracks for nas- uh, Natural Born Killers and Lost Highway in the past and had made mm. tracks for those. Um, but those were soundtracks rather than scores. Atticus Ross had done some work. He'd done like a segment on New York I Love You uh, and also did this, uh, the score for The Book of Eli, which came out the same year. But they were both relatively new to, to, to producing film scores. And this feels, you can kind of get that sense, not because this feels like an undercooked, like, Oh, clearly someone's first work but they bring in so much that is untraditional to film scores and and has since been so influential I think you can see the fingerprints of this score not just in the fact that they have gone on to be an incredibly successful pair of composers uh, and also collaborating with other people but you can hear it in other soundtracks across Hollywood I think, even in the past you know, it's only been 12 years since
1: this film came out, and I think mm. it has been that influential. A lot of it, just jumping jump very quickly, I apologise to him. Um, Reznor grew up learning to play the piano. Mm-hmm. So that's where he's most comfortable. And that's why it's like, well, I'll play this up on the piano, we'll go from there, that sort of thing. And I remember an interview with Reznor and David Fincher specifically, and him saying, this is the first time, having worked in films for, you know, decades at that mm. point, where I've sent off an idea to a composer. So this is what I want them for. And what's come back is pretty much what we settled on. Yeah. Cause and then that's why for the next two or three movies it's like, oh look, it's your boys. Because if you have that <laughs> working relationship, like, you know, I've had great experience mm. with these guys, but it's why fin- would I, Fincher and the boys? Why would I ditch this partnership? Yeah. But they yeah. get me and they I get them. Yeah, I I uh, I had that I found that interview actually. I
2: was uh and yeah, it's resner talking about it and saying ross and myself spent a few weeks generating what i thought would just be sketches for the score i figured we would end up going back and revising them probably 10 times and obviously fincher is a director who is known for being incredibly like, yeah. take upon take of all his films he's extremely demanding uh and he says but i delivered them to david and i didn't hear anything he finally got back to me and said i don't have anything bad to say that's never happened before <laughs> um and yeah, they, they, the, the the score that they created, they took some of the stuff that they previously worked on uh, Ghosts 1 to 4, which yeah. was a project that he'd been working on, and some of the tracks on the, the soundtrack are, are, are reworked, um, magnetic, and a familiar taste, I think, are the two that are particularly influenced by that. But yeah, it, it is Reznor and Ross basically doing everything. They perform it, they produ- produce it, they program the electronic side of it, um, you had Andrew Bellew, who's like this veteran musician, was uh, most best known for King Crimson and has worked in like as like a session and and touring musician with Frank Zappa, David Bowie, Talking Heads and Nine Inch Nails and various others as well, doing some of the guitar parts. Um, and it came about Fincher and Reznor had wanted to work together for a while. They had done, Fincher had done one of Nine Inch Nails' music videos and I think Resner had done, had initially done some stuff for Seven, or, or they'd wanted to work together on Seven, but it didn't happen. And Resner had uh, and Ross had both just come back from this very extensive multi-year tour, and uh, you know, recording and then touring and then recording and touring again. And Resner was like, "Actually, I, I've just got married as well. I'd like to take some time off. I'd like to do something fairly low impact." And so turned down Fincher initially, but then read the script, script and was like, "Oh no." I'd quite like to work on this actually and like went back to to fincher a few months later and was like you know just maybe still keep me in mind and fincher was like yeah no i i haven't gone to another composer because i've just been waiting for you to say yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is ex- again extremely fincher uh like and um and and resner and and ross then really embraced it um Reznor said it was challenging and truly enjoyable the whole process was fun for me because i liked answering to someone i respect and not having to make all the decisions for a change (laughs) and so the the level of excellence that david operates on is inspiring and they have since collaborated on um i think it's four films now Mm. uh girl with the dragon tattoo gone girl uh and mank is yeah. uh, yeah and then Reznor and Ross have gone on to do music for mid-90s, Bird Box, Waves, Soul, the Pixar film, which is mm-hmm. like, who yeah. would have thought that yeah. Trent Reznor would do the music for a Pixar film? If you'd gone back to, yeah. like, 1998 and told people that, they'd be like... What the fuck are you talking what, about? Yeah, what 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 are you on? Yeah, it's like, Is this
1: like a metal film? It's like, no, it's a jazz movie. It's like, fuck off. Yeah. You
0: know, it's a soul, literally a soul yeah, film. Yeah, it's a Pixar film specifically about jazz as well. Yeah. Even
1: yeah. more so, you're right, yeah. But yeah. the fact that I think it was uh, the all the various awards, is like... Mank, Reznor and Ross. Soul, Reznor and Ross. Those are two very different yeah. sounds. Like Yeah. The Nine Inch Nails people. It's like, yeah, yes, because they're musicians, dickhead. Yeah. Uh, and
2: and obviously this soundtrack was very well received, as was the film in general, but it got Best Original Score at both the Golden Globes and the Oscars won uh, that award. Um, and yeah, I, I like I say, it's something that I have very particular associations with, but I think it works so well as a score there is uh, incredible layers of both melancholy and anxiety to it um and the use of all of that kind of industrial without without feeling heavy but that that stuff that he brings from industrial music and those sounds those particular types of sounds the 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 machine sounds obviously it's a film about facebook which is not like a heavy industry <laughs> but it brings that detachment and that dehumanisation to it um, and it works so well they, um, uh, Reznor talks about how when they, they there was a temp score uh, or at least for, for parts of it and that opening montage just after the first, you have the first scene where it's um, Rooney Mara breaking up with, mm. with uh, Jesse Eisenberg's uh, Mark Zuckerberg and then you have that scene where it's him going across the Harvard campus basically and making his way back to his dormitory um, and it's where the, the the soundtrack first like properly comes in score I should say um and this beautiful track hand covers bruise, which is one of my standout tracks from it it's it introduces the movie so well and originally it had this kind of like alt rock college rock, just like something that would be heard on campus mm. in two thousand you know three or whenever it's meant to be. It felt like a, they said they said it, it felt like a John Hughes film almost. It felt too like happy, even with Fincher's. You know that 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 is a feel a, a section that is shot in like dusk, early evening. It's quite a chilly. You know, it's it's all that kind of classic Fincher stuff of you know, the camera is very deliberate. It feels kind of slightly alienated from everything that's going on, but it still felt too like kind of a little bit jolly and happening. And here he is hey, making it's his college. way. Across, uh, yeah, and and I think it speaks so much to the power that that. The music can have on film because you switch that out for hand covers bruise, and suddenly it just transforms that entire scene. With four notes.
1: Yeah. It's dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> oh. And that that really bassy boom. Yeah. Echo is like something awful is brewing here. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
2: There's this amazing kind of sparse tension throughout the film. And you just feel these people getting more tangled up in these situations with this incredibly often like sparse instrumentation or this very harsh digital sounds that are going on um, and the other, the other moment that I would pull particular attention to is when is kind of the moment where even people who aren't paying attention to the music in the film go, ooh music, yep. uh, which is the version of In the Hall of the Mountain King uh, that they use over the Henley Regatta sequence um, which is this incredible it feels like the song is falling to pieces towards the end. Um, is the best way I can describe it. All right, I get that. Um, and um I think they, they they'd spoken about like Fincher didn't really understand what Henley was because it's a very British class weird Edwardian thing. We don't get it because we don't, yeah. we're not of that ilk. We're not rich. Um No. And uh Dickheads on the Water. Yeah. Um, but he'd spoken to people and they were like oh yeah it's got this kind of you know it's this very like Edwardian Georgian throwback thing and he was like okay well let's take some music from back then but like fuck it up and he he said he wanted the, the Wendy Carlos version of it and Wendy Carlos is like this amazing pioneer of electronic music and Reznor and Ross at the start were very like really that's that's what you want us to do okay we'll have a go at it and it took them quite a lot of tries to get it right but I think that the, the, the it works so well because the the like i say the song almost fa- feels like parts of it are falling off as it goes through and it's while you're witnessing these the the um the winklevi lose this race that they have been training for um and and it's it's interesting because it's the closest the film has to an action scene uh mm, and it's, but it's directed yeah, yeah no and it's and it's two people losing a race <laughs> um <laughs> and but it's so you know obviously it's kind of like a metaphor for the fact that they failed in their attempt to build a social network and the song works so well for that it gets across so much of the intensity and the uh the the sense of purpose that they have and the sense of like grandiosity that they have that like oh we're harvard men we're gonna come in here and win we we are the king in the hall this is our mountain hall huzzah and it's like by the end of it it's just like no we just this is fucked um just sport rich kids with a keyboard yes uh that's falling down the stairs kind of yeah thing. yeah um so yeah it, it is a a score that i have listened to so many times and i think that there are so many interesting subtle things going on in it it works so well by itself it works so well in concert with the film itself um
1: i just think Mwah! chef's kiss i have nothing more to add your honor <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you did it you did it good <laughs>
2: uh jack why don't we come to you for your first pick Certainly. Mm. I'm going to go for a
0: similar kind of approach, I think, Tim. I was originally going to do it the other way around, but you've inspired me. I'm also going to do the same thing, I think. Oh, look at us. Look at us little sequel boys. Agree's on a thing, and we can do it in the right order and all that. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I wanted to break that, basically. Uh, I liked it. <laughs> I'm going to start with my most modern pick as well. One I hinted hmm. at earlier from Mr. Holkenberg, yeah. a.k.a. Junkie XL, if you know him from his EDM days and whatnot, mm. which I don't I do I want to talk about Mad Max motherfucking Fury Road mm. absolute banger of a movie with an absolute banger of a score and similar not necessarily similarly to Resnor and Ross but Hulkabur comes from a mus- musical background unsurprisingly started off as basically like a keyboard player in various Dutch bands back in the day he's originally from the Netherlands eventually moved to LA to try and make a name for himself and all this kind of stuff and became a junkie became this kind of DJ dance music kind of creator and then kind of felt, in his own words felt like he was dragged in to do something else because he was bored. He dragged himself to try something new and do something different because he's always playing something weird and trying mm. to do something that will challenge him and interest him. He's like what haven't I done? I've been in bands I've like had number one singles done solo stuff done group stuff film scores fuck yeah i'm gonna give it a go and he's done quite a few actually mm. and like i said earlier like i even saying tom holgenberg doesn't give away my pick necessarily because there's so much to choose from but what he does in mad max is so fascinating to me and so interesting and so integral to the movement and the kineticism of that film where you get just these insane ridiculous car chases the film is essentially one massive car chase if you really want to (laughs) boil it down to that and the way he's able to bring different moods and all the different settings going through the desert to the bog to the you know the reveal of the the women and the and mad max's kind of max's own theme and all this kind of stuff he is able to convey so much with such kind of like simple instrumentation Mm. a lot of it is literally like Drums, guitars, synthesizers, but synthesizers in a way that they are kind of like almost part of this weird like in kind of hinting of Reznor there as well. This weird like industrial metal type stuff to the point where, speaking of diegetic and non-diegetic, the fucking Doof Warrior shows yeah. up and is playing the riff that he's playing in the score, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was played by Tom Holkenberg. And I watched a, a video of him being like, oh yeah, that is specifically an influence of that is a lot of the like desert stoner rock stuff so like Queens of Stone Age Kiosk all that kind of stuff that like early 2000s real big California desert stoner rock stuff because Mad Max is in a fucking desert mm. that stoner rock stuff you Makes want sense. that you your kind of drive through the desert kind of vibes yeah. one of my favourite albums of all time is Songs for the Deaf by Queens of the Stone Age and fucking that is album. Yeah. absolutely amazing, amazing album and that's Josh Homme's journey out to Joshua Tree to record the album and it's literally him going through California now into the desert, and you get all the different radio stations and all that kind of stuff. I basically got this Gibson SG, this guitar, plugged it into this amp, had this tone, and just kind of noodled for a bit and played around. (laughs) That felt good, that seemed cool, and had this kind of, really kind of, as you said, just like, just kind of came to me. A lot of those Mm. kind of like, if you think of that, doof warrior riff if if you've heard it before that kind of like down 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 boom boom big heavy guitars short punchy it's not like crazy technical stuff it's just about that kind of rhythm and that kind of pulse and then he talks about the experience with george miller and this is something i wanted to touch on i've got a couple of quotes here from tom himself talking about what a fucking bizarre experience it is working (laughs) with george miller unsurprisingly uh, you'll be pleased to hear it took him and George Miller 18 months to write the score mm-hmm. and much in a, in a Fincher kind of way but not as how Fincher now does mm. with Resnor and Ross it was just constant revisions and uh, there's Hülkenberg quoting Miller about the kind of feedback the exact kind of things you were talking mm. about the first half of him. it needs a bit more ah uh, you know some it needs to be thicker but yeah. not, not as dense you know <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about um He says, Less fast, more
2: propulsive. uh,
0: Yeah, exactly. Let's get the broad strokes first, and then while the movie's developing, let's go into the details. Well, if you know the development of the movie, (laughs) that was a fucking mess of a production for that movie. So he describes the way of getting the final result is a very peculiar one. He goes into the details right from the start, and then that's where this, I started with the broad strokes first, and then we go into the details. But no. George Miller is picking out particular instruments and saying we should change that, not, oh, I think this will work for this scene or this character or whatever. Uh, He describes Max as a troubled character with a troubled past that has one instinct to survive. So when he breaks out of the Citadel and meets to save the women, or helps to save the women, I should say, because Furiosa is the real hero of this piece. (laughs) Thank you, Tom Hulkeberg, you are correct. (laughs) He is an uncontrollable animal, and that is the first thing I played this simple riff on the cello that dun 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 it plays three five times it's just kind of this statement that this man could be dangerous (laughs) that's a cool fucking quote Mm -hmm. Um, he then does a lot more of like talking about how he kind of went through and the different themes for Furiosa and all that kind of stuff here is the moment where he's talking to George Miller Uh, he says you've collaborated with many different themes A more delicate track like Many Mothers which showcases strings in order to tell a story most in most action films the composer needs to be careful not to be too over the top but you almost need that here that was kind of the feedback you got from Miller and he goes on to say yes you're right on the button there it took 18 months because in retrospect you can see what the main character arcs are the first arc is pretty clear but he would drill in and 10 to 15 seconds we would spend a month fine-tuning that 10 to 15 seconds (laughs) oh god it's quite brutal yeah yeah Yeah. sounds exhausting how would George express his likes and dislikes? When we play scene A with Furiosa, George Miller would say, when I hear the music, it really hits my stomach and I get this tight knot in my stomach that something isn't quite right and that I feel for this character right now. To be honest, I wasn't sure if there was a positive or a negative, says Tom Holtman. <laughs> scene B, he might say, the music is not talking to me. It's not saying, oh, I should be feeling this or I should be feeling that. I'm kind of feeling a bit neutral. Thanks, George. Doesn't fucking help. <laughs> nope. And They talk about their mathematical approach to music as well, because, again, Hockenberg coming from the kind of electronic side of things, but also being a guitarist and a drummer and having that kind of analog side of musicality as well, he's able to program drums and program these timings and build these time signatures that are really weird and interesting and unique and build them with the electronic side of things in mind and really kind of hone in on specific notes and specific timings and then combine that with sludgy stoner rock guitars (laughs) and this pounding pulsing drums that is again literally like a dozen drummers on a giant fucking war rig Mm -hmm. but yeah I, I find it fascinating that that score because it has such such huge dynamics you get these little quiet poignant moments and then the biggest loudest bombastic maddest shit you've ever heard in your life that is like blasting out of the speakers and then you get those quiet moments where you see, as we said earlier, like the women washing themselves off and escaping their chains and all that mm. kind of stuff. Furiosa's moment in the desert when she realizes she's gone all that way and it was all for nothing and all that kind of stuff. There's beautiful little strings and subtleties and stuff, and then you just have the driving insanity of the war rig on the other end of things. And I, I love the dynamic. I'm, I'm a huge fan of dynamic music in general. And from when I think of dynamics in Film score, this is the one that always stands out for me That has just everything on either end of the spectrum from the most quiet to the most insane and
2: intense. Yeah, I, I love this score. And I think it's, it's fascinating to kind of go back to what you were talking about at the beginning. Even before the Doof Warrior shows up and you see that war rig with all the dramas on it and stuff like that, so much of this score feels like it was produced in that world, and the obviously like the production design and the world building for, for Fury Road is just immaculate. It's like some of the best yeah. that cinema has ever produced, um, and the music works so well with that. It feels so much a part of that society that we're introduced to, and then to have it make that switch to diegetic occasionally. Um, just works so well and, it, and it's like oh of course this is what they're literally listening to because it sounds like the music that if you got the war boys together and were like well we found 8 amps but only one guitar uh, 700 drums and all of these pedals, but we don't know what any of them do. And it's mm-hmm. like, OK, well, uh, we have a fight. The one who wins the fight gets to hold the guitar and go mad on it. And, and the flames out in the end for some reason. Yeah, it metal. And the rest of you will split between hitting the drums really as hard as you can and like stepping on the pedals and trying to work revving, out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, revving engines and um, stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's, um, it's such a great score. And it works so like, God, it sounds like an awful... <laughs> like, it sounds like he went through slight uh, hell. Yeah. Uh, and So was this his first score that he ever did?
0: Uh, no, it wasn't, no. He,
1: no, it, no, he worked with the uh, 300 Rise of Empire. Yep. Yes, yep. yeah, this, yeah. This Snyder. Cool. Funnily
0: enough, 300 Rise of Empire, which we already covered on the show, by the way. Piece of shit fucking movie. Mm. It is, but... Good score. Yes, that is where the piano machine thing that he created is in that score.
2: He made yeah. it for Three Hundred: ah. Rise of
1: Empire. I think the music in uh, Three Hundred: Rise of Empire is better than Three Hundred, and it's just genuinely good music. So great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: yeah you kind of—it's kind of surprising, like, hear him talk about that. I mean, it's—it's it's like the um, Steven Soderbergh film uh, uh, quote, sorry, uh, where he says, "Like, I watched Mad Max: Fury Road, and I don't understand how they're not still making that film." Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's like, yeah, I. It kind of sounds like the experience that would put anyone else off ever making a film score again to mm. have to have it take that long and to get to go be going through like 10 seconds by 10 seconds and go like no we need to change that instrument for something else and it, like that level of like control but to have to the, the end product like is so good it almost <laughs> I start to worry it's like is, is did Tom Hulkenberg have his own little like whiplash moment, where <laughs> it's, it's a J.K. Simmons starring as George Miller. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's no, that that score is so good. Mm. Um, mm. Thankfully, he's gone
0: on to do everything from Deadpool, Batman v Superman, uh, Black Mass, the Point Break remake, the fucking hell. people and got to eat, <laughs> yeah, Tomb Raider, Elite Battle Angel, Sonic the fucking Hedgehog godzilla versus kong sonic the hedgehog 2 he's also scheduled to do the furiosa movie coming up mm. as well in the next couple of years or so yeah so yeah he's he's sticking around and he's done some amazing work even if he's done yeah a shitty
2: movie i think mm. furiosa has just started filming so it should probably be done by about 2030 <laughs> <laughs> hey, there we go matt how about your first pick
1: so again going in reverse order uh, from most recent to oldest, uh, I'm now going to be talking about the oldest of these three movies. So it's been said many times on this podcast that I am a very, very, very um, avid fan of Jerry Goldsmith. That likes a bit of bit of the Goldsmith. I fucking do, he my boy A slice of fried Goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'll take it. Um, yes, uh, I really do, and there are so many different influential franchises and soundtracks that he's produced over the years that I've just have really resonated with me and the way he works different light motifs in a really interesting exciting way that really stand out and and not that this is my pick but everyone's going to expect it to be my pick I, and, and only, I only really mention this because I told Jack before the show and he went what And I said, yeah so the very iconic for Star Trek The Next Generation of TV series. Actually, that's Indiana Jones. Shit, I'm out. Fucking E.T. Point is that Jack said, ah, you can't have it because it's TV. He said, no, it's cinema. Huh? It's it's from Star Trek The Motion Picture. like, is it? It's like, yeah, obviously controversial film and very frustrating for Star Trek fans, et cetera, et cetera. But Goldsmith composed that for The Enterprise. And so subsequently when he comes back, you're like, yeah, of course it's thing. And, and Goldsmith came back to score um first contact. Again, very different sounding score, but really fucking good. And he did a lot of other things, obviously, like, you know, the omen things. The one I want to talk about, however, is The Mummy. And from double, Verbal Dioramas Ears just pricked up. Good. <laughs> I am. A um, great, um, a great film. Abs fucking one of the best movies in a f- year of some of the best movies see, ever yeah. made um i i i adore the mummy as a film um and it's amazing because the mummy soundtrack does for lack of a better phrasing everything you need it to do it sets every tone you can close your eyes not see this movie and know exactly what's going on exactly where you're being taken where this is being set The feel, the tone, the mystic sort of like magical side of it, the terror, the horror, it's all in this amazing score. Um, And it's bombastic because of it, and it's soft because of it, because you have obviously so many love themes that are really lilting and really beautiful. You have these really thundering epic sort of uh, charging through the desert. It's got a lot of what we would associate classically, because this is again, a revival of an older style and, and not an accurate representation of an actual place but the idea of a place it's this ethereal idea of what Egypt would have been when you know mummies and tombs were being discovered Well, I say discovered, pillaged mm, uh, let's be honest yeah. and you know Europeans were rocking up and Americans were like hello and just literally f- trying to look for fortune and gold and it was an exciting um, time which obviously fed into like how art deco was seen in the later decades and 20s and 30s because it was like we're going to come across all this huge wealth of history and stuff and exploration and danger and yada yada and the score tries to do that in a way that it's like we're not just going to see like what, what what would have egypt have sounded like at the time although there are hints of that definitely with certain instruments and things but it's also the idea of what did that adventure feel like what did that tone feel like you talk about star wars for example you know the idea of like what does it feel like to get away from this you know th- this humble farm to go on an ad- adventure with rogues and you know, princesses and stuff. That, that's the feeling, right? It's, 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 that's what is captured. And the music mm. is doing the same thing. And here it's like, you have this eternal love and it's like, you have, um, you know, you know, the narration of the start, City of the Dead. And It's like, mm. oh, it's amazing. And it's really sitting in the tone. And then it just really softens up and says about how Imotep and Aksuna Moon are in love. And it's like, and the whole thing, it's still got that peril to it. It's still got the, 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 the intrigue going on there, but it just goes back and forth like a conversation. Underpinning everything, and each theme is chaotic and fun and wonderful. When you see like a marketplace, or Amjad Lily's character comes in, for example, it just has more playfulness to mm-hmm. it. Um, the the terror of being in the desert and the sun rising over Hamanuptra. It's like this score, to me, is one of the examples of why Goldsmith is so important to me personally as a composer. Because it's not just that it's com- you know composed and considered. It's not just that it's working with a director and getting something. It's that it. It, it, it's it's vital to this movie and inseparable from it. Yeah, I think
2: because The the Mummy is such a throwback to earlier adventure films and, and all this kind of thing, mm. and it does, it has so many different tones in it. It has obviously action and adventure, but it has not just the strong central romance of Brendan Fraser and and uh, Rachel Weisz's characters, but like you say, the whole Imhotep and Axanamun, like mm-hmm. forbidden romance, tragic romance element. It has comedy. It has horror. Like it, it's doing all these different things. It has, you know, exotic locales and all that kind of stuff. You need a really strong soundtrack to be able to handle those different tones, but also cohere them into something that isn't, or
1: that doesn't feel like yeah. all over the place and muddled. And this is where I'm going to piss off a lot of people. So I've said in the past Rick O'Connell is better than Indiana Jones. <laughs> And I know it fucks people off. And it's like because the character's more charming. He's not Harrison Ford. I'm gonna slap you now. Yeah. It's like oh, he also didn't date a 13-year-old. There's also that. Um, but <laughs> Marion. Yeah. It's like uh, wait a minute. Let's just do some maths here for a second. But the point is, Indiana Jones. We talked about this. Uh, actually, I think just before we start recording, and how John Williams had three separate little ditties, little tunes, little things he could work into it and all three of them are the Indiana Jones theme. And they're iconic, and we love them, and they're fantastic. Of course they are.
0: How's that go, Tim? I can't.
1: I don't know <laughs> anymore. <laughs> all the songs sound the same. John Williams, you've broken my brain. do know who doesn't sound the same. Jerry Goldsmith. Anyway, um, so basically, um, <laughs> but the idea is that Indiana Jones, the theme... Dun, 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 dun Dun, dun, dun. It's, it's the theme. It's the idea. It's, it's the idea of going on an adventure. It's the, mm. the heroic sort. Of of course, it is. It's the, it's the same thing I've just talked about, except it's played in every three, uh, every one of the three films. Maybe if they made a fourth one and it was terrible, and <laughs> they played it in that too. Maybe there too. We'd have to sequelize it. We would have to. We'd have to. We'd have to. It'd, it'd, yeah. Um, and so, for example, it's like, well, hang on, are we talking about like you know Nazi Germany? Are we talking about India? Are we? Talking, and obviously, these things are there, but they, they're so slavishly devoted to the light motif that you can't escape it. Whereas there are so many different themes and settings and bits in The Mummy, but all of them feel like they belong in this one movie, in this one franchise, in this one thing. They are so rooted in it. And for that, it is a much stronger score. It doesn't feel like someone's just waltzed in with something that's out of place. It's like, yeah, we get the feeling, but you're getting it so rooted. Even when it's got the comedy elements, it still feels like it's from this world. Mm. So yeah, that's that's why that's my first pick. Maybe not the goldsmith everyone expected me to go with, there's a but lot I, to choose from, Mr. Gilden. Mm-hmm. There really is. But a, but a really solid example in my opinion. It's backgrounded to you, Tim, for the second choice. Uh as you said, I we
2: I and all of us uh are jumping backwards in time as we go. Uh so I am going to go back ten years, my previous pick, to the year two thousand. My god. Y2K had just been overcome. The mummy had just come out. The mummy had just come out. There you go, yeah. Uh but more important. Ha ha more importantly, we had my film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon.
1: Now, come on, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> we 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 have talked about this film on the show. We love this goddamn film. We do. We do. I
2: I had forgotten how until we did it for sequelizers. I'd if you'd have asked me, I'd have gone like, oh yeah, it's a great film. And then I rewatched it and I was like, oh no, it's a perfect film. There it is. Yeah. Um and. Uh, the score, which is done by uh, mostly by Tan Dun with some collaboration by uh, Chen Wanlin, Lin, is so good. And we talked about uh, 18 months, was it, that uh, Junkie XL was going back and forth with George Miller? It was indeed, yep. The score for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon Uh-oh. was produced in two weeks. Fuck off. Yeah.
1: Madness.
2: Um, which is crazy to me because it is so diverse in what it does it draws on so many influences uh, tandon is the the composer who i mentioned earlier who makes music by having bowls paper of water and, rocks <laughs> and and stacks of paper and stuff he is a, it's a chinese born american composer who does kind of contemporary classical stuff he's worked on operas he's worked on orchestral pieces chamber pieces vocal pieces and film scores um only a few though uh this was pretty much his first film work. Uh he then went on to do Hero. He had also done Fallen, the uh Denzel Washington fighter demon that hops bodies. Oh wow, film. yeah. Uh
1: there's a weird little Remember there's always like bad films with good scores and really great composers in weird films. Yes. Yep. Um although that film's it's a little bit underrated, I think. It's it's fine. It's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: I like it a lot. Yeah. Uh and he also went on to do the uh Film known as the banquet or in some places it's called legend of the black scorpion um he did this kind of that hero and crouching tiger is kind mm. of uh, martial arts trilogy that he scored so he's he comes from a really interesting uh background and he's you know he's gone on he does these kind of compositions that have the all these auto audio visual elements um and he's done these works that are like contemporary operas that shine a light on Um, like smaller ethnic groups in China that integrate things like interviews and um, like the sound of people working on the street with their orchestral stuff. So he's a, he's a real like galaxy brain guy of like, Mm. I will draw influences from everywhere. I will make my own instruments if I have to, that kind of stuff. And yeah, his work on Crouching Tiger feels so classical without feeling locked in the past obviously like it's um a, a wuxia film it's heavily influenced by kind of chinese music from that period drawing on kind of instruments from then and uh melodies uh from that period but also mirroring it with more contemporary stuff you have yo-yo ma playing the cello theme which is kind of the thing that carries through the film because if you've got fucking yo-yo ma playing the cello you're Mm going to deploy that as often as you possibly can absolutely um and uh it's also it's the shanghai symphony orchestra the shanghai national orchestra and the shanghai percussion ensemble so you are working with some of the best musicians in china here uh in terms of producing this score um and it did, it went on to win best original score oscar and the best uh bafta uh, the bafta for best music mm. and i think it's just it, that cello theme that you have from yo-yo-ma is so good because it's it's used in such versatile ways it carries through the film and we talked about leitmotifs and it, it is exactly that and it is a it is a film that is so much about mood and about tone um, and about marrying this extremely kind of mannered romance about social standing and class and hierarchy with a martial arts action film with this kind of meditation on death and grief and longing and regret it brings all of the the, 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 the score helps unify all those things and it also helps make each moment stand out so much. Um, it has those moments in it where that kind of real sit-up-and-take-notice music, where yeah. y- you do go kind of go like, oh, something shifted here. I think when we were talking about Crouching Tiger, I mentioned how there's a moment when... Um, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this is such a perfect marriage of image, music, everything that's going on. It is uh, Michelle Yao's character is uh, chasing who turns out to be Zhang Xi's character who has stolen the sword um, and they do this, they have this initial kind of fight and then they're doing this chase across the rooftops and it's the first time we really see the kind of the the wuxia uh, wire work of this kind of uh, zero gravity tripping across the rooftops, amazing Mm. grace. Um, And then there's this moment when they kind of come to this courtyard. Michelle Yao's character like swings around and starts running down a wall. And it's, I think I said in the Crouching Tiger episode, I was like, I'm still not entirely sure how they did it apart from Michelle Yao might just be a superhuman.
0: Yeah, Um, she most definitely is.
2: Yeah, and it is marked by this transition in the drums. And it's been a very drum-driven section of the score, and they have these amazing Chinese drummers working on it. But there's this incredible, like, little pause, and then this kind of like, boom, 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 dun, 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 dun. Uh, and it's such an amazing moment of just like punctuating that action and saying like we've mm. got used to this rhythm. Now we're going to switch up the rhythm. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's it's fantastic. That's that's kind of like one. It's that's a kind of section called Night Fight, and it's one of the ones that I would draw particular attention to because it just the percussion is so amazing. Like they like I said, it's the Shanghai percussion ensemble, and like those guys don't fuck around.
1: Mm. Um, and uh, it's, it's got such an atmosphere to it. Yeah, it not it, it feels like if you were to listen to it very carefully, like, where is this being recorded? Is yeah. this outside? Is this inside? I don't understand How many people are playing these things? The yeah. reverb it's just you're right. It has this almost ethereal sound to it. It's, mm. it's, it's crazy. And, and the fact that it can it can
2: create those moments of uh, speed and kind of action. What we would think of as like action scoring without breaking that Contemplative mood, like that, is such a fine line to walk to maintain that mood mm. while still providing the kind of the 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 energy that you need under an action scene is incredibly difficult. The other one that I would showcase is um, the Eternal Vow, which just to me really shows that central how that central cello theme can kind of be woven into the music for different effects. It's this track that goes kind of it transitions through these different kind of moods. But maintains that that central line through it and it just is so good at kind of keeping everything coherent um and i just think it's obviously like it's yo-yo ma he's an astonishing musician um and this mournful cello theme is so good um it kind of becomes like we said about how light motifs can be for like a character or, or for a setting or whatever it feels like it's um, Li Mu Bai and Shu relationship and it keeps coming back obviously because the film is essentially about their relationship but it feels like it's more than just for one character or for the other it feels like it's about it's so melancholy that it's like it's not just about the characters it's about what they don't have
0: it's their love that will never be right exactly Absolutely.
2: yeah Absolutely. Um, so yeah I, I, I think like I said I think it's a perfect film and I think the sound the the score does a huge part of that in terms of bringing it all together in terms of maintaining urgency when it needs to and easing back when it when it wants to slow the pace down yeah astonishing and i, and I kind of i can't believe that he hasn't had there haven't been truckloads of money driven up to his door and gone <laughs> please score more films because yeah. you're amazing like between yeah. the hollywood industry and the chinese film industry like how is i unless he just is like I've done it, and I and I want to move Maybe, on. Maybe, yeah. Given that how creative he is, that might be the approach that he has. But yeah. like I can't believe that someone hasn't been like, "Hello, yes, please do that again and have all the money to do it." <laughs> Jack, we're back round to you. I'm going to talk about one of the most
0: award-winning, critically acclaimed scores being a bit cheeky here. It's from a trilogy of all time. I'd say it's not that cheeky because it was all composed around the same and, time. Yeah, it's all kind of the same thing. It has won four Grammys, three Oscars, two Golden Globes, and a shit ton of other stuff. <laughs> That's right, you sold me. millions of copies. Yeah, I'm talking about yours ha- for nine
2: ninety nine. Exactly, <laughs> available
0: in one low price single box set for just nine ninety nine. You call one eight hundred sequel right now. I don't know how those phone things work, but in all seriousness, I'm talking about Howard Shaw's score for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm-hmm. which is an out and out stone cold classic. We talk about leitmotifs. Your leitmotifs coming out your ass, mate. <laughs> You're a leitmotif for individual fucking hobbits, mate. And there's a million of those little fuckers.
1: <laughs> I remember being a bookseller when this film came out. Um, and we had an... In, uh, uh, I can't remember who it was exactly, unfortunately. But two of the production people coming over to sign books and stuff. And it was very, very cool. And, you know, only questions from the audience. A little kid asked a question, you know, probably Jack's age at the time. And they're saying... Yeah, how do they do the arrows? Thirty-one-year-old man. Okay. No, and you're the hello, little boy at the time. Do hello, dirty arrows. Arrows, <laughs> I, so I need to know. And one woke his hand up. And you think, oh, what is he going to say? "I was wondering about the the music." Think, oh yes, of course, of course. What an amazing score! No, I don't think so. Uh, I want what a drab, really heavy hand. I think the one they did on the BBC system years ago on the radio <laughs> play was the most important and Buck best version. Right like, off. Fuck off. So there was a lot of backlash to start from wankers, but time... It's ha- Tolkien. There's always going to yeah. be wankers That's who aren't true. satisfied. Yeah.
2: But See also any other fan heavy oh, yeah, community. Yeah, yeah. The but it is Blech.
0: so, so, so good. Yeah. There's things that are just able to evoke spectacular, fantastical locations, people, entire like species. You get a whole like elves kind of vibe in the Rivendell theme. You get a just hearing concerning hobbits, the main like hobbit theme, you get an idea of what kind of people and what kind of society the hobbits live in in Hobbiton. It's so incredible how much Shaw and his team is able to convey with just music to tell you about the world building. And it is, as we kind of talked about, like Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings universe and that world is one of the most explored and studied fictional universes <laughs> in the history of literature and fiction people know the languages and every inch of every map of mordor and the rest of middle earth but the score for me is the thing that always stands out and always brings the emotion to scenes and just cranks them up to 11. whether that's the driving drums of doom and the orcs barreling through and approaching i mean fucking terrifying or as I mentioned, the little light, airy moments of concerning hobbits, the epicness of Helm's Deep, the slow driving horns of the Ents when they arrive and eventually fight back. There's just it just says so much about the characters in that world, and you can straight away understand what kind of people and what kind of societies and cultures are in this world just from the light motifs that Shaw gives to a particular location or a particular character or a group of people. Blows my mind every time how easily he's able to convey those kind of things without even you seeing anything on screen. You hear bum. That was and exactly like, what was in my head. That's yeah. that's evil. Yeah, they're evil. They're they're scary, they're big, they're terrifying. Straight away. You hear dum 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 Oh yeah, they're probably like carefree, fun loving little Party dudes, like there you go, that's Hobbits. It blows my mind how the the diversity of that score, even though it is is all orchestral, pretty much. There's some choral stuff going on, especially when you get to like Galadriel and the more kind of like mythical, mystical, elvish kind of stuff. It just brings a tear to my eye when you get and they're sailing off to the Undying Lands and the final little moments and. The way what we touched on earlier, where you take a theme and oh, it's minor or oh, it's played on a different yeah, instrument or at a different speed or whatever it is. That happens so much when you see when they meet Bilbo and Rivendell, the Hobbit's theme plays again because they've met another Hobbit who they haven't seen since his eleventy first birthday. It's genius. There's those little moments where you're just unconsciously tying all of this stuff together and like, oh, yeah. It feels like they haven't been in Hobbiton in like decades at this because these films are really fucking long. They haven't been in (laughs) Hobbiton in hours and it's probably months for them. But you get that little reminder of like, do you remember how carefree and happy everyone was at the very beginning of this movie? We do. (laughs) But here's a little sad version of that theme. You're like, oh yeah, that's really good. That's really clever. And then, yeah, you get some of the, I I did the kind of like big drum epic horns Mm. moment there. That is just iconic and drilled into my brain. As you said, Matt, like, that's the thing you think of straight away. Mm. There There are so many icons. Mountains! You get the the fellowship (laughs) theme, exactly, yeah. Um, I can't talk about Howard Shaw's score without also talking about taking the hobbits to (laughs) Isengard. The meme that was drilled into my brain in college uh, to the point where me and my friends would do the classic thing where we had a lesson on the computers because hello, I'm an old man and we had specific lessons on computers back (laughs) in my day. Back in my day. And we would all try to line up taking the Hobbits to Isengard on the computers at the same time so it's blasting out of like six PCs at once in the computer (laughs) room and the teacher is going mental. And yeah, it's hilarious and ridiculous. (laughs) And even like the opening moments before any words are said, you hear... Some of the light motifs established. The ring theme appears as Galadriel's eerie, airy introduction shifts into Bilbo telling his story and talking about his kind of adventures mm. previously and stuff. You understand that oh, he's going to come back yeah. over and over again because this thing is about the fucking That's ring. That's the
1: same, not obviously literally, the same haunting idea of like this feels forlorn and sullen Mm. i don't get it as the start of social network like Mm. why are we starting with this sort of eerie downbeat kind of what is this and it's like because it's haunting because what you're about to see is going to change you yeah it's because it's i think this tweet or
2: something that i saw the other day it's like yeah lord of the rings is a post-apocalyptic story <laughs> yeah it's just that the the society that has died was like a medieval one yeah, yeah. um yeah so yeah, that uh there's so many leitmotifs that that from that trilogy that are just they instantly like produce the effect that they were they're like mm-hmm. it's so yeah. good at instantly evoking those emotions um, and I also think about how many Dungeons and Dragons games have been like hyped up by instantly putting on the oh, like yeah. the Kazadum music yeah. and being like, "Hope you guys hey, are ready you're in the big boss fight!" It's it's
1: just there are things as well that will, and this is a tragic thing to say, but I've been to weddings and I've been to funerals where music from Lord of the Rings has been played. Yeah because it's got such a range because it's yep. trying to tell these hugely hugely epic things things like when gandalf's at the top of uh, isengard and he's whispering into the little moth and, and mm. so like that's just, oh, just a haunting yep. vocal thing. there's so much in there, so much so rich and mm. again three films scored in one go crazy which is essentially 10 hours of film yeah <laughs> yeah
0: it's a lot of work for sure i don't know much mm. as much about the behind the scenes stuff um uh, Hulkenberg talked about it a lot in interviews when it came to Mad Max. Shaw sure has talked about it a little bit, but not as much in terms of you know what actually went into the creation of it. It seemed like a fairly reasonable one compared to what <laughs> compared to what poor Junkie XL went through. So yeah. I'd
2: be I'd be fascinated to know what the process was for the extended editions, like whether all of that was scored to start with and then they cut down, or if they had the cinematic cuts they scored that and then they were like okay and now we're going to put out a version that's four hours long you've yeah. got to compose an extra half an hour of, or an extra hour of music but it's got to slot in in weird well, different places is,
1: but weirdly enough with the director's cuts in general uh that is what happens you have to get the composer back when yeah. you try and bleed it out as best you can so yeah yeah there we go
0: on to the next pick mr stock
1: 1988 oh So, uh, this also shouldn't be overly surprising if you know me at all. Um, (laughs) You don't. I'm I'm using three different names for the same thing, arguably. Oh, no. Gaino Yamashiro Gumi. Okay. Tsutomu Ohashi and um, Shoji Yamashiro. So, it's a collective, it's a person, it's an alias. Okay, fine. Which one are you talking about? Uh, The composer Tsutomu Ohashi. Uh, Ohashi, who goes by Shoji Yamashiro, scored Akira in 1988. I don't think it's hyperbolic to say Akira is a absolute game changer. It is the kind of musical score whereas a creative, it changes your outlook on what is possible. So in the 80s, you had a lot of uh, buck in the trend things. You had a Philip Glass doing Koyaanaskatzi and lots of guttural throaty very old sounding earthy things that felt ancient and human at the same time and with akira based on the entire concept of what akira is as this animated movie about again neo tokyo because tokyo has been wiped out mm. by this event um after a war uh and and then the, you know the the, the akira events as, as well and it, it is classic uh, the, the, the the 20th century, later 20th century vision of Japan. This super hyper future post-apocalyptic world mm. where it is literally 10 leagues ahead of everybody else in terms of the mm. future and yet so rooted in the past and tradition. Neon up the wazoo. are fucking lowly. And all the nighttime shots are, you know, inventing colors you've never seen before, literally. <laughs> and the daytime stuff is haunting in scape- uh, scope and scale how much there is. Um, and the music... Feels initially out of place because you're thinking oh it's the future it's going to sound like the future mm. bring me bews and theremins <laughs> um, and it's like no it's I mean there's when the uh, clown gang comes in the first thing is oh eh, ah. <laughs> what's this it's like well it's you know it's, 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 it's old chanting it's like why it's a what it's 2019 it's a biker mm. gang what the fuck is going on mm. and that's kind of the thing it's this this uh, very uh, rhythmic, very percussion-based sound and Shoji's whole thing was I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want and I don't care what people think. <laughs> and I sometimes, as a creative, really love that where you go, I'm not making this to uh, please people. I'm not giving you the score you think you want. I'm doing a sound that is going to be unique and rooted in the past and the future at the same time and terrifying and monstrous but also haunting and and it cannot much in the same way that you can listen to the score by jerry goldsmith and go ah the mummy i know where we are now you can't take this music out of akira and put it anywhere else you when you listen to this music it's wonderful it's beautiful it's haunting it's it's creepy it's it's like what am i listening to this is insane it's like a nightmare and I can't not see the visuals of Akira. They're so uh inextricably bound. Mm. Um, and at the same time, you have this whole soundscape created. you have this world being being made. And what's fascinating is, did it before the movie was done. You did it as I mentioned like the the Hans Zimmer thing. He created this sound and s- uh, sent it to the director, uh, who also was the um the the artist, the mangaka who 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 wrote and illustrated the original Kira thing, Katsuhiro Otomo, and said, um, right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to be, you know, getting this m- musical mastering of digital sound stuff and world music and all bits and pieces and this whole new feeling. And I have it here for you as a, as a, as a guide, basically. And Otomo's like, yeah, that's it. Nailed it. As much as we saw with the, with the Fincher thing, it's like, this is it. This is, this is, this is the sound. And mm. it's so iconic and definitive definitive, sorry, that nobody has been able... I mean, one could argue about ten-ish years later Ghost in the Shell did a similar thing with a very ancient, traditional Japanese sound with a very modern digital undertone on the mm. whole thing. And that made this haunting, tsunami But again, th- and while that's true, and while I fucking adore that soundtrack, guess what it is? Just Akira again. Yeah, it's just <laughs> It's just that whole marrying the old and the new in a unique way that will forever be timeless and we've people have been trying to replicate that sort of a, that sort of sound that cyberpunk sound of something because the part of the nature of what we're talking about in Akira itself as a as a as a um, production it's about something older than humanity but the idea mm. of where we are going and where we've been so there's so many huge philosophical mindsets and it's all rooted in the sound as well everything about it is telling you that something is wrong and off and we can't really comprehend it but it's been with us this whole time and i love that kind of stuff i think i think it's genuinely the kind of score that genuinely honestly only ever comes across like once in a lifetime Mm. and 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 you can never really replicate it and nor would you want to and if you're like oh i want to make it sound like this why that was so linked to that movie. Why would you want to do that again? Mm. Why? How could you do that how, again? How are you gonna compare? Yeah. Like, why? Why would you offer yourself up for that comparison? Absolutely. And it's like, well, what can you do that's different? Oh, well, maybe I'll change the instruments. Maybe I'll change the culture. Maybe I'll change the, the, the setting. Sure. Guess what you've just done? Not do that. You mm. haven't done Nakira. Um, so yeah, I, I think it. I think it's haunting and terrifying and beautiful and maddening because that is literally what the world it has created and it's a, it's a musical reflection of that world mm. it's dark it's dangerous it's uncomfortable and yet ever so slightly familiar mm. ever so slightly human among all the towering buildings and holograms and and crime and misery etc etc et it still feels tribal that's it's fascinating mm. it's, it's amazing yeah primeval is
2: the word i i oh, very good, very good. when i think nice. about that and, and like we talked about diegetic to non-diegetic and stuff like that the moment and it's like the opening moment of the film where they put on the record in the club and yeah. then go out and you have those drums come in like and it there's so many bad like if they, if it was done like in Hollywood like for whatever you know it never would have been Our done way to Yeah, the it, 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 zone. there's so <laughs> many bad rock songs that could have come on then and then instead you get this mm. just like ancient sounding stuff and you're just like oh, this, I wasn't expecting this, but I like
1: it. Yeah, it's like, what am I seeing? You're seeing young warriors on a hunt trying to prove themselves and a, a sort of like, oh, I I literally am. This could be set any time, anywhere mm. in human history. And I'd be like, that makes any sense. And of course, there's obviously the vocal elements to it all. And there's this whispering of Canada, that's all. Yeah. And it's like, you're naming that Yeah, there's so many layers to it. It's fascinating, mm. it's beautiful. It's just... As big as the film itself that it's come from. Yeah, very much so. Tim, your third and final pick of the Eve, please.
2: Somebody's got to talk about fucking superheroes, so I guess it might as well be me. You it's going to happen eventually, right? Oh, the yeah. only one who is, actually. Yeah, yeah shit, yeah. Uh, and people are probably doing the maths here, trying to work it out. They're like, oh, okay, well, he's going back in time, mm. and he's already done 2,000. <gasps> oh, what's, what's going on here? Um, and I think that there's been a lot, written and video essays and stuff about how the marvel film track uh, soundtracks or scores rather are a little bit disappointing a great little job, bit very lacking sometimes they come up with some good stuff and hello, then, G- sometimes hello, hello, uh and then sometimes that gets uh abandoned by the next people who work on hello that. Danny yeah. Hoffman yeah and there are marvel soundtracks i really like i've played uh, the, the winter soldier one i think is one of the best matched with the best film absolutely um and i've played that many many times another good like Electronic working music, but I I am going further back. I'm not doing Marvel.
1: I'm doing DC. I I really want to preface this up here. Tim has done something so interesting. Because mm. there
2: there's there's been a lot of icon and it makes sense for DC characters who tend to be more iconic and less uh, grounded that they would have some great themes out there. Uh, and there have been many. I feel like every time we get a new Batman, which is like getting the a ki- It's like getting a kaiju in Pacific Rim. It speed, it double doubles <laughs> in speed every every time. <laughs> um, but the score and the composer working on it is always held up as like, oh, what are they going to do this time? What are they what's going to be? Oh, Hans Zimmer. Okay, all right. What's going to? Oh, Giacchino. What's he going to do? How's it going to compare to the last one? Oh, okay. But for me, nothing compares to Shirley Walker. Take a moment, everybody. And people will be going, who? who? Shirley Walker did the soundtrack to Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. Hell yeah. Which is the best Batman movie. Hell yeah. Uh, She also scored Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, The New Batman Adventures, and Batman Beyond. Hell yeah. um, Setting the foundation for the DC Animated Universe, which is the best version of the DC characters. Absolutely. And she does an amazing job on this score. Uh, she's a fascinating person in her own right. She was one of the first female composers to earn a solo score credit on a major Hollywood motion picture. I think she was the second. That's depressing. Good yeah. for her, It but is it, fucking depressing. Yeah. Um, she played synths on the Apocalypse Now score. Uh, she was a musical prodigy. She was working on film scores and composing while she was still in high school. And uh, she has collaborated many times she is more prolific she's done film score scores uh, she passed away in 2006 sadly quite young um mm. uh but uh she worked on a lot of film scores did the final destination movie uh good soundtrack good yeah, score like the yeah. first the three i would movies, think of think. with a score so yeah. Know, it's, it's yeah genuinely um, good and has worked on various other things she's also worked as conductor for a lot of people which is, Feels mm. like kind of being the editor, and it's that thing that is a little bit underpraised in terms of film. Like everyone's like, "Ah, oh, the
1: composer." Yes, it's like yes, but also the conductor needs to be on point. Yeah. Um, and she's, you're, you're the one actually leading the thing that's being recorded. Yeah. Composer can write it down, but the conductor's the one who, and that was often the same person. But yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So she's collaborated multiple
2: times with Danny Elfman, uh, on Scrooge, on Batman, Dick Tracy, Edward Scissorhands. She's also conducted and orchestrated for Brad Fidel, Hans Zimmer, Graeme Revell, Basil Poliduris. Um, Industry fucking giants. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Hans Zimmer plays synths uh, in the Mask of the Phantasm soundtrack. Brilliant. So yeah, she, she's a fascinating person. And um, she, she had taken essentially the Elfman score from the 1989 Batman, which was, you know, beloved, huge and kind of the reason that we got Batman the animated series because everyone was like it made huge money at the the box office then we got Batman Returns which also made a bunch of money and they were like time for a Batman mm. another Batman cartoon this and is this is a little too dark for the kids how can yeah. we sell
1: to kids yeah <laughs>
2: um so she took elfman's themes and then developed them essentially um for both the uh, the cartoon and for Mask of the Phantasm which was the the film version film Kind of spinning out of yeah. the animated film of, series. of the series, That's the animated series, yeah. yeah. Like the animated series, it gets the balance of Batman so perfect. It feels dark and gothic, while also having its kind of feet in the kind of Art Deco 30s and 40s mm-hmm. of when the character was first introduced. And oh. so you have all those inspirations of like the shadow and characters from around that time. I love
0: that weird timelessness of the animated series. Yeah, I like. It's got zeppelins. Yeah. Like, okay. And when all, were zeppelins? Well, uh, yeah. It's and Batman. All the,
2: like, all the cars have those like giant radiators at the yeah. front and running yeah. boards and stuff like, like some that. Some
0: 50s stuff, some 60s stuff, and some twenties and thirties stuff. Like, yeah. Here's some computers. But yes, what? also yeah, there's exactly. computers
1: and stuff like yeah. that. Well, yeah. not not as we recognise them today, obviously. No, <laughs> no. Um, and yeah,
2: I I think Mask of the Phantasm does everything that I want a Batman score to do it feels huge and and gothic like i said and uh, intense while also having these moments of like intimacy that really dive down into the character like until recently the mask of the phantasm was what the only batman film where batman had an arc um and it has some really interesting like uh, romantic themes in there also does some great stuff with individual character themes their, uh, the track Phantasm and Joker Fight has this amazing moment when uh, the, the, the the Joker, you, you can kind of integrate it throughout it. You hear these little like bits of instrumentation. Again, I'm not a musician, so I couldn't put my finger on what it is doing, but that feels circusy. Uh, and then you have <laughs> this moment when the Joker shows up and it goes
1: full-blown, just like... Uh, and then blends it's usually an organ stepping at that point, yeah, yeah or and an um, a clanking sort of handled uh, monkey grinding, oh, yeah. organ grinding <laughs> kind of situation, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, and then blends back into this sa- uh, score that they that she's established, and it works so well. It should feel like a complete gear change, but because she's layered in little elements of it already, it it obviously feels shocking to. to but then it just kind of blends back into it, and it's 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 a complete masterful work. And yeah, I think even even more than just the whole the score as a whole, the main title from from Mask of the Phantasm is everything I want Batman to to be. Yeah. It just feels so soaring, and it just it just captures the essence of the character to be better than anything else has ever done. And I, I'm a fan. I like you know the the Batman Begins and Dark Knight's soundtracks. I think uh, scores. I think are great. I think I really like giacchino's score for the batman um and i think it does some really interesting things but yeah i come back to mask of the phantasm and i just think shirley walker got it right like everyone else is in her shadow
1: and and the thing is just to to, to round off anyone's like well that's not you're standing out. when it's like no you're thinking of the one batman leitmotif he did the... <singing> which is which is fucking amazing yeah but then you listen to it, it's also very see it's very much Elfman yes but uh, but then you also stop and think can you hum anything else from those Batman films yeah <laughs> it's like yeah the penguin theme is like uh, whack 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean obviously there's stuff in there it's very nice and very cool and very deep and some people might go well I can blah, blah, blah. but no and that's where you get someone like Walker coming through and it's like actually you know what I can take this and run with it properly mm. and build a world with it rather than just one sound. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the difference, I think, in my eyes, yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: and also, as a, as a final note, Mask of the Phantasm has, uh, because it's in this weird, like you said, this weird, like, when is this set? During uh, some of the, um, like, romantic scenes, they have this kind of very, like, lounge singery, but in the kind of, thirties, 40s It feels like something Jessica Rabbit would sing. I mean, sure, sure. <laughs> called "I Never Even Told You," which is very kind of but but tragic, very noir. Yeah, elements to it, like the Rocketeer. Yeah, uh it's performed by Tia Carrera. God damn! <laughs> yeah, wow. interesting. Wow. Didn't know that. Of Wayne's World fame, exactly. Mm. Anyway, that's my last little final interesting fact. For solid you. One, man. solid one. Jack, going back to
0: as I've stated previously on the show. The greatest year in the history of cinema. (laughs) The year of our Lord, 1982. I want to talk about one Odysseus Evangelos Pathanasu. Also known as Vangelis. The late, great Vangelis. I want to talk about Blade Runner, basically. Yep. Because Blade Runner's score is a fucking masterpiece. It's a weird thing that manages to catch me off guard i don't know how many times i've seen blade run at this point in various cuts and different various different forms but i feel like i discover something new with that score every time i watch that movie the way it intertwines not dissimilar to mask of the phantasm weirdly enough the old-fashioned noirness with the futuristicness and is able to blend both like traditional instruments and that signature Cyberpunky technoir kind of synth just amazes me every single time. I'm always caught off guard by that fucking saxophone. <laughs> that it's saxophon- the 80s, man. The oh, saxophone the sneaks up out of nowhere in that very uncomfortable scene <laughs> with yeah. Rachel and Deckard. And I'm like, yeah. oh, it's a romantic thing. Oh, no, no, Deckard's not a nice person. But the way Vangelis is able to enhance that world and build just on the the textures of the lighting and the atmosphere like the example I always think of is the scene where Rachel is first introduced and she walks across the room in the Tyrell building and you just get these little like almost like things are powering down. That slide you mentioned earlier Matt. Oh yeah. Moments where you know she's a replicant. Obviously Deckard is trying to determine that. The whole It took more than a hundred camp questions on that whole Mm -hmm. section. Tyrell talking about playing God and creating, essentially, humans in his image and all this kind of stuff. And there's this ominous, haunting electronic noise going on in the background. There's almost this hum to this world that you know is... The Tyrell building is this towering fucking pyramid in the desolate LA landscape. Mm -hmm. And you can barely see anything through the massive shutters that come down and just the hints of Rachel's eyes and the light of her cigarette mm. and just little hints and little moments and almost like glistens of synthesizers in the background. The atmosphere that Vangelis is able to build is unparalleled, in my opinion. The way it matches up with the visuals of the movie and the performances and the whole world of Blade Runner is just spectacular i can't think of an example for me where i was so like instantly attracted to the combination of both just working together so perfectly
2: i think it's a lot like akira in the sense of yeah like i had heard so much about both of these movies and then when i finally watched them the score was not at all what i was imagining it would be like (laughs) but yet you can also see in every film that is like them or, or nodding towards them you can go. Yeah, I can see why you've put this on the soundtrack now because it's what Blade Runner did, or it's what Akira did. It's yeah. like you're tr- you're trying to bring in those elements. Um, yeah, the Vangelis sword does it, does it so it blends. It, it gets the mood exactly right while not relying on like it never feels like it's hitting the tropes. It's like oh yeah, it's noir-y, and it's tragic and it's also futuristic. But we're not we're not gonna like lean hard on any of those buttons. We're gonna. Take those ideas, do our own thing with them.
0: Yeah, I especially love, like, obviously, the iconic scene where Roy Batty's final moments and the tears in rain speech and all that kind of stuff, and the way it almost sounds like, I don't know, I'm like, this is very wanky and in reading into this, but like the rain pouring down, the way Rodger Howard delivers that final speech, it almost feels like the rain is hitting. Bangelis's instruments and they're just kind of like keeping out of the way of the performance and not distracting mm-hmm. you but laying that foundation to just to Rutger Howard to just knock it out of the park and deliver one of his most iconic performances of his entire career. Mm. Arguably the most iconic performance of his entire career yeah, and, yeah. and having that kind of ability to for want of our phrase like keep out of the way of so much of that stuff and add to the layers and the atmosphere as I said I think Van just absolutely nailed it. He he perfectly captures that kind of di- different because nobody's really a good person in Blade Runner, and that whole thing There's there's always a constant sense of like ominousness and greed and power and technology and all the layers of like the world within. You know, is there because it's fucking dystopian future and all that kind of stuff is also just baked into his choice of sounds from. The various synthesizers using again similar to what we've been talking about with people who make new instruments and experiment and stuff vangelis was doing a weird shit with a lot of his synthesizers doing stuff that nobody had really heard before in film scores and as you rightly said tim like stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect for something that is gone on to become so influential to so many people when we got to this kind of recent 80s revival thing we had in the sort of 2010s so many people Stranger Things theme being the perfect example of that. <coughs> <laughs> that like driving synth kind of sound. Everyone's like, oh yeah, just like Blade Runner. I'm like, yeah, have you listened to the Blade Runner <laughs> score recently? Not much of that in there. Are you thinking yeah. of like Tron Legacy or something? Because I think they of, j-
2: of John Carpenter probably more than anything. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. yeah. And uh,
0: the other thing from 1982, obviously speaking of John Carpenter, the weird thing of The Thing Mm-hmm. And you have Ennio Morricone doing electronic music as if he's John Carpenter, and that whole thing—it's like, <laughs> yep. wait, what the fuck is going on here? And those two movies coming out at the same time on the same in the same year still blows my mind. And they're two brilliant examples of just a setting atmosphere with electronic music to make you feel uneasy and alienated and weird in this world where robots and machines and in the case of the thing like the thing the alien whatever you want to call it unknowable and weird and kind of different to us but we you can't really put your finger on why or how and i think that the layers of that kind of electronic sounds that vangelis brings along have you constantly like unsure of who is on whose side what deckard's plan actually is the kind of ambiguity of the whole noirness of it all and the kind of mystery there as well I think it does a brilliant job
2: of, like adding mm. that all together and combining it all i think that like one of the things that a lot of films that are set in the future and like on earth forget about a sense of history and blade runner doesn't when you look at stuff like the 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 set design of the police station in that it feels so old and it's yeah, like yeah, yeah of course there's going to be like hangovers from earlier in history um yes. And I feel like the Vangelis school works really well in that regard. Like it doesn't, it it feels
1: new, but not too new. There are wind chimes a lot. Yeah. yeah. Wind chimes are one of the oldest things we have as a species. Because you, you know, in literally Neolithic periods, you'd have bones with holes in it. And you'd hang them up outside and whistle through it and then clock together and things that's in this film yeah and then the, with a the more like crystal sort of sounding and more mm. you know glass effectively there's they're yep. a very different vibe to it but it's still like that's an ancient human thing because again the question of the film is what does it mean to be human yeah Yep. yep. this is part of it music is tying the into that atmosphere and that mm. theme yeah, absolutely
0: man. so so brilliant so brilliant and yeah i've obviously won awards for things like chariots of fire went on to do a bunch of other incredible work but the blade runner score is what always stands out for me for vangelis's career Mm. Me, oh for yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Mr. Stoggs, polish us off, please, sir. I oh, will do. Travel back further in time.
1: 1968. Oh, Not that far back. Oh. I mean, for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, oh the final one. The blink in the eye of a stogdon. It's going to be a fucking 1919 thing, isn't it? Or, no, it's Godzilla from 54. No, no, no. Although, yeah, that could be cool. So, um, we've talked about Jerry Goldsmith and his creating a thing that transports you to a feeling and a place that may not ever be real but it's so rooted that you can't you can close your eyes you can see where it's taking you talking about the score for Akira inseparable from Akira so similarly again you close your eyes you can't not see this and I wanted to do one last one that did a similar sort of thing but in a different way so um, in The Mummy you get the vibe that certain the sounds of the streets are heard in the music you get this whole setting it's not diegetic as such but it's still there With the start of Akira, you do get that diegetic thing that's played in the jukebox. This score specifically is one of the most diegetic kind of things I I, I can think of specifically. Because it is a character's leitmotif. It's a character's personality. It's a character's name and everything about them and their backstory. And it's fucking brilliant. And on top of that, the music is a goddamn banger. Um. (laughs) I'm talking about Ennio Morricone, and just teased him there with my little thing reference. You, you did. What I've described could technically apply to a few different Ennio Morricone, Morricone um, soundtracks by Sergio Leone's uh, in Sergio Leone films, but I'm specifically going Once Upon a Time in the West, 1968. This is essentially, effectively, the last Western one of the last westerns that uh, Sergio Leone did, with the Spaghetti Westerns being very bucking the trend of what American Westerns were and they were reviled by certain people and then get on their own right in cinema and think actually you know what they're they're visceral and they're very European but they're also incredibly bold etc etc and this is a big sprawling epic and it's a very simple story if you don't know it there's a train coming through and they want that land <laughs> that's it it's a whole film um, and there's lots of characters intertwining all these bits and pieces cross over and different uh, agendas but it's just like railroads coming through and this one family's holding out um they're all sort of wiped out of start. it's 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 magnificent and it's it's classic old uh western sort of stuff setting tone story scale etc etc and one of these aspects of the story is uh a bunch of dudes and dusters are sent to collect a guy from a train station it's charles bronson and his character does not have a name he's stood there and like okay well He's not here. We're going to go. And by the way, that's after like a, what feels like an eternal 10 minute sequence of nothing happening. Um, and then all they hear is this harmonica shrill coming through. And they turn around and it's Charles Bronson. And he looks up from his rim of his hat and he stood there. It's like, uh, where's my horse? And he's like, looks like we're, uh, we're shy one horse. And he just shakes his head and says, You brought two too many. It's like, oh fuck. Who's this guy? Ba bang, bang. bang. <laughs> and he rides off. It's like, okay and every time that character comes in that harmonica comes through who's he looking for he's looking for frank specifically looking For this guy played by uh henry fonda okay um henry fonda who at the start of this movie has shot a kid in the face it's just it's brutal and and henry fonda who is america's like it's like fucking tom hanks basically yeah, america's yeah. dad at the time it's like again it's like imagine there's a cowboy film and his family's been attacked and there's like stepping out of the woods and the camera turns around like jesus christ it's Tom Hanks, effectively. <laughs> it's Jason Bourne. Oh my God! That's just Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jason Bourne. Jesus Christ. Jesus. Um, and then it's like, what are we gonna do with this one, Frank? And then he looks at him, and you no, know, that classic Sergio Leone close-up, and says, "Well, now you call me by name." And it's like, shoots a kid. And it's like, imagine if, again. It's like, oh, imagine Tom Hanks doing that. Because I, I say Hanks specifically because again, it's America's Dad. It's what his, the guy's career was. And a bit of a spoiler, the whole thing builds to a showdown. It's one of the very last points of the movie between the man with the harmonica, harmonica and Frank. And we learned that when he was younger, the harmonica character is trying to basically keep his brother who's being hung alive, um, but he can't. And he's put the harmonica in his mouth, like, keep your loving brother happy. It's like, because <laughs> he can't breathe, he can't stand up, and he's losing his, his, his weight. And that harmonica is not just the score even though it is a very oh my god it's so moving it's such an epic um, melody and i'll get to that in a second as to why but it's also in the moment that harmonica is in that kid's mouth you know it's like it's like you can you can tell what's going on here um it's so important and he's just playing it back to him. like when i play the song that's why i've been playing because i'm on this this is a very important thing in the same way that the watch in for a few dollars more that kind of thing etc so it's a strong link and the reason that is because is it ennio morricone Loves Puccini, the uh, composer, the guy who composed Madame Butterfly. Uh, Morricone loved opera. He saw it. Uh, he said if uh, if those guys were alive now, like Verdi and Puccini, they would be scoring films. And yeah, that's um, how it works. That makes sense. Absolutely. And it's like, and why is that? It's like, because it's the biggest scape, it's the biggest sco- um, sc- uh, scope and scale, sorry. And you can do so much. And the melodrama is so hyped and yet so contained. You can go on, you can do these huge, long, sprawling themes, or you can have something that is bold and powerful and screaming at you in the face about every emotion going through them at the minute. And that's, by the way, one of the themes in um, Once Upon a Time in the West. And there are a handful of other ones that are just as iconic, just as charming, just as interesting and intricate. And we mentioned about, well, haven't mentioned too much, but one of the hardest things to get into older movies it's not necessarily the color grading or the black and white it's not hokey performances because that can be part of it because you can get around that sort of thing it's the fucking music Mm. the music in old films will make you go oh this is goddamn irritating (laughs) it's it's really grating and really frustrating so people will very rarely say oh do you remember the the music from this 1930s movie yeah there's some really solid ones obviously Mm. there's gonna be some things like oh that's quite iconic and I, it, it tends to be musicals that people point to yes, or, or fil- fil- like songs in movies mm-hmm. rather than scores when you go back true because the scores were just like they, they were a bit too big a bit too brass, a bit too bombastic like they are now effectively um, but they were very much of their period of time they were, they were doing things in a very ham-fisted way in their own fashion um, and not a lot of them have aged well it's only when you start to get to, and, and this is maybe an unfair thing to say. Some of people say, like, "Well, bollocks that," because this one from the forties, the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Mm. You know, from Casablanca is like, sure, fair enough. I, I can't, I can't discredit that. But I think collectively, once the sixties and seventies started to roll around, and filmmaking changed a bit more with New Wave and bits and pieces like that, and then, and then obviously with the rise of Coppola and and Lucas and De Palma, etc., etc. We talk about this on the like um, French Connection episode. Once you get to that stage, you get a door opening saying it doesn't all have to sound like this you know Mm. you know we can make it sound like anything yeah and this is one of those examples of because the morocconi's always done this with every project i said about the whole like you know some people like you listen to the score and go oh yeah sure this is fine not Morricone. i feel like i mean no it doesn't matter what kind of film he's doing what kind of vibe he's going for he gives you something really strong out of it yep He's, he is one of the greatest of all, well, was, mm. of greatest of all time mm. because he was making operas. He was doing a thing where we're talking about, oh, this is why we're going to close them this one. Why are we doing this? Why is there music in this? I mentioned that earlier, right? That's the question. Why do we have this? Mm. And then you've got Morricone very quietly sort of in his Italian way saying, because we're watching operas. Mm. It's big, melodramatic stories. Tim, as you said earlier, these aren't like real life kind of reflections. They're big, bombastic stories about heroes, and journeys and quests and arcs and love and death and everything else on the it's fucking opera, man. So score it like a fucking opera, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what he did. And that's why all those themes, or so many of those themes, are just so powerful and so iconic. I, I remember Hans Zimmer paid a tribute to it in the third Pirates of the Caribbean film mm-hmm. when there's a little sort of treaty between Davy Jones and and. Uh, Cutler Beckett, I want to. Sure. Say. And uh, and what's the name of the character? Yeah, Tom Holland's character. And um, basically, they're all they're all of this thing, and you have a version of it coming through of the mm. harmonica theme, and it's like, yeah, because it's it's amazing, and it <laughs> it sets the tone of like a duel, and uh, you know, uh, just it it seeps pain and frustration and determination and mm. anger all quelled into this whole musical thing. So yeah. Um, that was why this is my pick because it was like, oh, good, bad, and the ugly, right? Taxi uh, of gold, which is one of the greatest musical bits of film of all time. Mm. And I'm like, absolutely, yeah, but no. <laughs> um, no, Once Upon a Time in the West is the one that really, for me, uh, Flack of Better Beltran sings. Mm.
2: But like you say, with Morricone, it's an embarrassment of riches. Entirely, you can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah really we talk, can't. We about the thing, you know. It, it,
0: so it still blows my mind. Yeah, still blows my mind. Yeah. So those are some of our picks from the history of cinema. I hope you enjoyed them. I'm sure there's plenty we've missed out. I'm sure there's been plenty of people on our Discord going, can't believe you didn't mention this specific thing that
1: I like. V for Vendetta. It's good. V for Vendetta. It's got a great score. Sure. (laughs) Do you see what I mean? Evie Reborn. It's great. Sure. They used it in the Fantastic Beasts trailer. This is really good. Oh, wait, hang on a minute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is V for Vendetta. But
0: if you would like to... Join us on the Discord and have this kind of discussion where people complain about us not mentioning incredibly specific things that they like on an episode. Go to sequelizers.com. There's links for the Discord. If you click the little Discord button, you get an invite, you go straight in. You are welcomed by the welcome committee, which is a bunch of gifts, basically. And messages. Sentient gifts. Sentient gifts. No, the various uh I don't know, adjudicators. They're not moderators, but they are the, the regulars of the Discord. Send a bunch of gifts to welcome you to the The Discord. The elders of the Discord. It's pretty much the elders of the Discord at this point. It's the, a lot of them are executive producers. A lot of them you'll probably recognize from us discussing them on previous episodes. OGS. Exactly. Original gangster Sequelizers. You can go find the shop on our website as well. You can get our social media links. You can get all of our merch and all that kind of stuff. Basically go to sequelizers.com. It's the hub for all sequelizers information and. If you want to follow us on social media we are sequelizers on twitter and instagram if you want to follow me i am jlw chambers i tweet about seo and dnd and
1: wrestling and stuff matt how can people follow you on the internet stogs s-t-o-g-h said you can go to cheesemint.com and see the things that i make you can go to the red and see the things that i review you can also look for sumo drop via the bbg wrestling channel for my sumo wrestling coverage tim uh where can we go to pluck your strings, mate? Uh you can play me like a fiddle on
2: twitter.com slash trivia underscore lad. Uh that is where
1: I sing my many songs like Tom Fucking Bombadil. F- full full fucking disclosure. Tim h- is wearing shorts, no trousers, no, no, no shoes, <laughs> no shoes, no trousers, no shoes, no socks. And he's goes hand on his knees and he's staring at me. I'm like, all right, sing to me, Tim. <laughs> we're in a weird place. <laughs> it's got deep and weird real quick. But yes, go and follow us on all the social media.
0: If you can, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice, Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, whatever it may be. And uh, if you can afford to, please support us on patreon.com. Well, we're getting towards the end of the interseason, gentlemen. It's barreling towards us. Season 11 will be upon us soon. Shit. Are you feeling ready? Not remotely. Nope. Same. Matthew? Of course. No, Matthew's ready. I'm ready. Matt's ready. He's all, apart from the intros. No, you've got your intros sorted as well. Yeah. You've got pitches, intros, all kinds Synopses. of stuff. Synopses. Synop- ah, there we go. Mm, we got him. Catching me off the guard. He'll forget about it. And then Dave will be yeah. like, shit. Synopses. Accurate. Yes. Whereas I do that with my pitches instead. <laughs> shit. I need to do a pitch. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you got all that to look forward to in season 11. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's going to be some real stinkers and some real bangers. So, mm. stay tuned for season 11, folks. That will be coming up in a few weeks when we finish this interseason. But until then, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support. And have a lovely week until next week.
3: Da 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 da.